time. Ten wins. You give us 22 minutes. We'll give you the world. Good morning. 64 degrees at 8 o'clock. It's Tuesday, September 11th. I'm Lee Harris. Here's what's happening. Yeah. It's news. September 11th. 8 a.m. in Salisbury, North Carolina. 7 a.m. in Chicago. 5 a.m. in Calaveras County, California, where the news is being made on this Tuesday, September 11th. From CNN. Anyway, that's all coming up. at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. It appears that the, there is more and more fire and smoke enveloping the very top of the building, and as fire crews are descending on this area, it, it, it does not appear that there's any kind of a, an effort up there yet. Now remember, oh my God. That looks like a second plane has just hit. I didn't hit. see a plane go in. That, that just exploded. We I... just saw another plane coming in from the side. So the hold takes about, looks like six, seven floors were taken out. And there's more oh, explosions there's right now. Hold on, people are running. Wait, so hold on. on just a moment. We've got an explosion inside. The building's that... exploding right now. you got people running up the street. Okay. Hold on, I'll tell you what's going on. Okay, just uh, put, put Winston on pause there for just a moment. Okay, the whole building just exploded some more. The whole top part. Okay. The building's still intact. People are running up the streets. You are looking at this, at this picture. It is the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center, both of them being damaged by impacts from planes. We saw one happen at about maybe nine minutes before the top of the hour. And just moments ago, so maybe 18 minutes after the first uh, impact, the second tower was impacted with a, by another, what appeared to be another passenger plane. Today we've had a national tragedy. Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. I have spoken to the Vice President, to the Governor of New York, to the Director of the FBI, and have ordered that the full resources of the federal government go to help the victims and their families and, the, and to conduct a full-scale investigation to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. We also have a report now that the, it was a plane that crashed into the Pentagon and we have a large fire at the Pentagon. The Pentagon is being evacuated as we speak. There is a lot of confusion here at the Pentagon. It appears that uh, something hit uh, the Pentagon on the outside of the fifth corridor, uh, on the Army corridor. Several Army officers I talked to reported hearing a, a big explosion, seeing shards of metal uh, uh, coming past their window. The Pentagon has been evacuated. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way! America is down 
in the general vicinity. Dan, can you tell us what has just happened? Yes, Peter, it's Don Daly down here. I'm four blocks north of the World Trade Center. The second building that was hit by the plane has just completely collapsed. The entire building has just collapsed as if a demolition team set off. When you see the old demolitions of these old buildings, it My folded God. down on itself and it is not there anymore. That should be it. It Thanks has very completely much, collapsed. The whole side has collapsed? The whole there? building has collapsed. The whole building has collapsed? The building has collapsed. That's the southern tower you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. The second building that we witnessed the airplane enter had been, the top half had been fully involved. There, as you can see, perhaps the second tower, the front tower, the top portion of which is collapsing. Good Lord. There are no words. September 11th, 2001. A day of grief. day of courage. This is how that day unfolded. How you doing everybody? Uh, this is David Cantu. This is Jenna Gazelle. This is a very special episode of Coaster Challenge Podcasts and today we got a pretty powerful episode for all of you guys because it is Friday, September 10th and tomorrow it's going to be the 20th anniversary of September 11th. And I will tell you guys that is definitely, uh, I can't get over it, Jenna. It's been 20 years since that tragic day. It feels like it was just yesterday, actually. Um, yeah, I, I will say that every time we have an anniversary of 9-11, I will say it just, the flashbacks I get from that day, from what I saw, I was just, uh, yeah, it, it just feels like it's with you every day. It's just uh I would say I think in our generation, this is probably the most tragic event we've ever witnessed in our lifetime because I know that our country has really gone through some major challenges in the past. I would say the the worst the worst from before 9/11 was Pearl Harbor. Well, for our generation, this is kind of our Pearl Harbor for the generation that was that's before from the, you know. Yes, and this was actually the first terrorist attack that actually targeted average citizens in this country which it just blows me away that there are people in this world that would even think about doing events like this it's just it's mind-boggling in my mind what what people can do i think even 20 years later it's still kind of hard to like wrap your head around i mean i went got to go down to new york in 2014 and my mentor told me because i wanted to go down to the site and my mentor told me she goes being an empath for me she was like don't do it because the emotions down there are so heavy and so hard to deal with as you can tell choking up over this it would just it wouldn't be the same it would be too hard for me to handle as an empath i can only imagine that because i have not had i have never been to new york city now i've been to washington i went to washington back in 2019 and I got to see Pentagon and I saw, I drove by and saw the memorial that is there for the 9-11, for the tragedy that happened there. But I do plan to go to New York next year. That is one of the number one uh, places I do want to go. And I'm trying to prepare myself because I know a lot of people that have been down at the memorial. They said it's a very powerful environment of emotions, especially when you walk the museum. 
Yeah, just I my my mentor, she went down there and she said even for her, it was very overpowering for emotions. And, you know, she was like, I, even though she knew that I really wanted to, being that I just started on my uh, spiritual journey of everything of, you know, being a psychic and having being an empath, she definitely was like, don't go down there. Don't go down there because it'll it would basically it would hurt me a lot because of just feeling all those emotions and for people that don't understand what an empath is um side note we feel everything from what a person that's sitting across the room for us or if there's a bunch of people in a room we can pinpoint basically what emotions everybody's feeling so her telling me not to go down there i had i took her advice because even now you know 20 years later it still kind of affects me because it's like that all those emotions that go through your head of what everybody was going through it's really hard yeah that day it hit me the hardest even though we're here from the west coast i will tell you that that is a day all of us that's why remember after 9-11 the banners the shirts the bumper stickers the message the slogan that went across this country it wasn't just united we stand but it also said we will never forget right and this is definitely a day we will never forget and i will say 9-11 hits real home to me because the t- <sighs> i got a very i'm going to try and make this a quick story I was in college when 9-11 happened, and I was an architect major. Now, Jenna, you've known me all through school. You knew my passion and dream was to always be an architect. Because yes. you knew how I loved to design. I loved designing buildings, houses, and landscape. Legos and and, and I, out of my Legos, too. I would take my designs and literally build them out of Lego models. Well, I was in architect school. Well, this is what's so ironic, is that our, t- our professor... When before this is before 9/11 happened. This was like a year before. Our professor told each classmate that he wanted us to pick a piece of architecture that we love, and he wanted us to research it, study it, and he wanted us to give a presentation in front of the class with a model of of our architecture and photos, and do like a whole whole presentation, PowerPoint, uh, model display, everything. So an entire year. The model, my most favorite piece of architecture that I did a presentation and I shared was the Twin Towers at New York City in Manhattan. I was very fascinated with the World Trade Center. It was always my dream to go visit those Twin Towers. On that day, and I gave, and I, I researched and learned everything, like how, because we had to learn how, how it was constructed, how it was all designed and built, why was the design done the way it was done. I learned all that in 2000 year before all following up to 9-11 when 9-11 hit and those towers got hit i had already and just i was already my eyes were glued to the tv but i already knew looking at the impact zones of the towers i had a gut-wrenching feeling in my personal view as an architect major i thought the south tower i knew where it was hit was going to be doomed because of where it was hit in the middle of the tower and the weight above it i thought the north tower had a chance of survival because it was hit at the top but there were a lot of things that i had to learn but when those towers collapsed i literally was in deep deep sadness i was very upset and i will tell you everybody in this country had what you call a silent silent anger more like to call it 
That silent anger was within me that morning. My most two favorite pieces of architecture destroyed. The next couple, a couple days after, I had returned to college, and my professor literally called me and said, hey, can you come to my office? And him and I sat down together in his office because he knew that I had picked the World Trade Center as my favorite architect piece, and he loved the presentation I had given about it. Him and I literally sat down, and he actually brought Jenna. I guarantee it was against school rules, but he did it because of the, the, the situation we were all in that, after that day. He literally brought two Coronas, and he had them in his mini fridge. He handed me a Corona, and him and I sat at his desk. He says, we need a beer for this one. <laughs> he wanted to know how I felt what happened that day, because he knew about the Twin Towers were my favorite pieces of architecture. And I told him, I said, I'm, I'm upset. I'm really pissed off. I'm, I go, I've got a wave of emotions right now. I don't know what, I, what to do here. But him and I were discussing about how they collapsed and how, because of how it was constructed. And there will be a time where I can discuss that in another episode, maybe another 9-11 episode. But we had a very in-depth conversation studying how and why those towers collapsed. And him and I both learned something new from each other. And then after that, him and I sat together with our class. And we just had a whole day just discussing about the architecture. But he actually had me run the class to talk to the students about the Twin Towers and what happened. And you got we to all, be teacher for the day. Yeah, basically I got to be like the professor for the day. And you know what? He gave me high honors because of how I handled that that day when he had me sit down and discuss it with the class. It was a very emotional day. Uh, there was a lot of emotions that day in that class. But I will say that I will never get a chance to see those towers now because of what the terrorists did. We will keep them in our memory. I have lots of photos, and I have great videos. I have to thank YouTube for being able to show me what the lobby looked like, what the sky lobbies, how it looked up above the observation deck. You know, so at least I have those memories there. But at least the one thing I did was I built the Twin Towers out of Legos years ago, tall models, and I did it with love. And that's something I'm going to cherish, and I will always remember, remember all the people that were lost on that day. Normally in our regular episodes, we do what we call the YouTube highlight clip of the week here. But because of this a special occasion and the magnitude of how 9-11 was, we decided to do something special for all of you guys today. And uh, I know this is going to be a long episode, guys, so please bear with us. But this is just such a, a very serious day. This is a day of American history that's going to always go down. And we were all part of it that day. We reached out to all of our previous guests that have been on the podcast so far this season, and we asked them to send us little stories, testaments of where were they on 9-11. And so, take a listen. Like many others, 9-11 is a day I'll never forget. I was in music school at the time, and I was sleeping in because I didn't have class until later that day. I was woken up by a phone call. It was my cousin. A cousin I was basically raised with. We were much more like brother and sister by this time than cousin. We were always together. Our families were always together. And she was sobbing. Asking if I had any idea where my parents were, or if I had heard from them, or 
anything. I had just woken up, so I had no idea what was going on, and she implored me to turn the TV on, which I did, and then obviously I figured out what was going on. See, my parents were in D.C. that day. We hung up and spent hours, like so many other people that day, trying to find our loved ones. Calling and calling and calling and getting nowhere. Not even a ring. Eventually we did find my parents. My mother was in DC proper. Downtown. Being escorted out of her meeting, she recalled seeing snipers and security soldiers on the roof of the government buildings. I believe that the police had told her and the people she was with to go to a subway to shelter, but I could be wrong, but that's what I remember. When I got a hold of my father, it's funny now looking back, but at the time, it was maddening and horrific. He answered the phone and we argued. He went down because he's from Maryland and he wanted to take a trip with mom, but he figured while she was doing her meetings and so on, he would go look around his old neighborhood and drive through Maryland and so on and just try to, you know, take in some sights and memories. When I got a hold of him, though, he didn't know what was going on. He was complaining about the traffic and laughing and just in a mood that seemed odd. So I was mad at him because I was looking for mom and he had no idea why I was looking for mom. I just couldn't register in my head that he didn't know what was going on. But again, he wasn't listening to the radio. I think he was listening to a CD or an iPod or something. I, I don't recall exactly, but something. Once we fixed that, though, everybody was on the hunt for mom. And then, like I said, we found her. Luckily. We were one of the lucky families. Everybody came home that day. A week later, I found out a friend from high school was actually in the Pentagon. I knew he had joined the Navy, but I didn't know he was in the Pentagon. He was a paramedic and an EMT for a while before he joined up, and he told me that when the building was hit, he didn't know what it was. He didn't know if it was a bomb or what was going on, but he did tell me that once he ran outside and saw what was going on, he ran in and started grabbing people, helping people out. Just one of so many heroes that day. To those of you who lost somebody, I'm glad you're still here. I'm glad you're here to remember those people. To those of you that just had a rough day, we were lucky. It's truly a cliche, but I can confirm to you that you really should just tell people you love them or show them if you're not the person that uses words. Whatever your language is for showing love, do it. You don't know if you have a day, an hour, a minute. Don't waste it. Don't lose perspective when you're talking to people and hearing their sides of things. You don't know what they've been through. Try to listen. Don't wait to talk. Listen and try to see and hear things from their perspective. Take care of each other and love the ones you love and make sure they know it. This is just a short version of a story that happened to me on that day. Probably one in a thousand. So on 
We were actually at Epcot Center and um, we heard the news from a park employee and uh, the park actually closed and was evacuated that day and we had to leave the park and I remember going back to my hotel room and watching the events unfold and just in shock and disbelief at all the horror and um, utter chaos that was created that day and uh, just still in shock to this day how someone could do that to their fellow human beings is it's, it's kind of beyond belief but um, yeah that's that's my story of 9-11. I remember being at work on 9-11 starting my day like any other when a co-worker came in to tell me of the first attack. A television had been set up in the lounge so we all went down and gathered around to watch for news coverage when we saw the the second tower attack happened live. It was such a sobering experience and one that I'll never forget the rest of my life. On September 11th, 2001, I remember being at work and I had gone to the break room to get a cup of coffee. And when I got back to my floor, I remember seeing everyone gathered around one of the TV monitors. And I remember thinking to myself, something terrible must have happened. Then I saw the images on the TV of the Twin Towers burning, and I just remember standing there feeling totally numb as we watched on the TV this horrific act. Um, all I remember really is being asleep when, when it actually happened, and then I woke up and I saw it on the news um, about probably about 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, I saw what had happened on the East Coast. And I just remember being in shock and awe and just, you know, what the heck happened. You know, I felt very, very sorry for the firefighters of, that were lost there and all their families. I remember on September 11th, 2001, that day I was a junior in high school. In that particular time, I was in study hall. And all of a sudden, our principal came on the loudspeaker and made the announcement for all to hear that the Twin Towers in New York City had been struck by an airplane. And everybody stopped what they were doing in class and you could just hear the silence through the halls. And we just asked by our teachers that day and the staff to reflect what was going on in our country and to think of all those that had lost their lives during that attack. And I can remember coming home from school that day and everybody in my house wasn't working because their jobs had been canceled for the day. And we came together as one and watched the updates as those that were pulled from the refuge, the rumble from the trade center and from the Pentagon that we were lucky to be together that day as a family. So on the morning of September 11th, 2001, I was actually asleep at home. Uh, my mom came in, tossed me the phone because uh, my brother was at school and she told me to you know, answer the phone if it's my brother's school to go get him. And I was kind of was like dumbfounded and I was like, why? And she was like, the Twin Towers were hit, turn on the news. And I was just kind of in shock when she said that, so I turned on the news and was just watching the news. And, you know, the first thing was, um, 
is my stepdad going to have to be deployed over there to help out because he was in the National Guards. So we were kind of on pins and needles waiting to see what would happen with him. Um, I went to work that day at Savons here in Burbank and I took a picture and um, had it developed. And when I got home that night, I gave him one of my rings and the picture and told him if he got deployed that he had a promise that he would come back in some form. On the morning of September 11, 2001, I had actually gotten up at 5.30 in the morning here on the West Coast and uh, because I had college classes that morning. It was a really big day. Uh, my best friend was staying the night because him and I were going to school together and we carpool. I got up and was doing my usual routine. I would get up, brush my teeth, and I, was, I went and jumped in the shower. And as I was taking a shower, I heard my dad shouting out for my mom. And usually on a morning, morning in our family, my dad's always shouting. You know, he's not a morning person, so he's always very grumpy when he's in the morning. And, uh, but this, uh, his shout out to my mom was kind of unusual. So when I finished what I had to do when I got out of the shower, I got dressed and was getting ready for school. And I walked into, I saw they were both in their bedroom and I walked in to see what the commotion was. And right as I walked in, they had the TV on the news and it showed the Twin Towers on fire. But right as I walked in, the second plane had just hit the tower and I walked in right when it happened. And at first I thought this was a movie because it didn't seem real. And then when I found out that this was actually happening, this was a real thing, I was just in total shock what I saw. And my eyes along with my folks um, and then my best friend woke up too from the commotion and we, our eyes were just glued onto the TV screen the whole morning and we literally watched from when the second tower hit to where the Pentagon got hit and then watching the Twin Towers fall. Um, I was just, had this sinking feeling like, like my stomach just like curled up and I literally had to go outside and sit down and just process what I was watching today, that day. And we didn't even go to school that day. In fact, I remember my best friend and I throughout that whole day on 9-11, we needed to do something to get our mind off of what it was. So we decided to go to Blockbuster Video and we decided to rent Ace Ventura When Nature Calls. We needed a, a movie to get us to laugh because we, it was just a day of just being sorrow, uh, just a lot of pain and just sadness. And so, but when we were driving through the streets of Burbank, there was nobody on the streets, no cars. We walked into Blockbuster. We were the only ones in the in the place, and we were gonna rent it, and we decided not to because there was nobody. It was like, oh my goodness! It's like we decided to just. I took my best friend home, and uh, and then I went home to my family, and we just spent the whole evening together, just being together as a family. In fact, my grandfather even came down even that morning because of what was going on. It was like, even my grandparents were like, they felt like they needed to be with us. They needed to have the whole family together that day. Um, it was just surreal what we witnessed. And it was something in my generation, I have never seen anything uh, this, this tragic ever happen in this country. And I was just, uh, let's just say that 9-11 will definitely be a day that no, if you were alive to witness what happened that day, 
it will always be with you. You will always remember how you felt, the pain you felt that day. And it is definitely a day I will never forget. Twenty years ago today, millions of Americans in New York, Washington, D.C., and around the country were just going about their daily lives like any other day. It was a Monday, the beginning of the work week. As they finished out the day, little did any of them know how much their world would get turned upside down the next morning. In life, the fear we face is oftentimes unfounded. Riding a roller coaster, crossing a bridge, going into the ocean. These are all common things that people fear that so rarely actually result in the outcomes that people are fearful of. Flying in airplanes, going to the top of tall buildings. These are also common phobias that so rarely come to fearful fruition with a negative outcome. 20 years ago though, such normally safe activities became anything but safe. It was the day that the earth stood still. On September 11th, 2001, the gravest terror attacks in the history of our civilization were carried out. Thousands of innocent men, women, and children lost their lives that day. As 19 terrorists destroyed so many lives in an instant, fear filled the hearts and minds of millions around the country and the world. What does one do when the fear is real? When a situation presents itself where concerns over fearful outcomes are well-founded, how does one deal with such a situation and survive through it? Well, today, on the 20th anniversary of the worst terrorist attack in human history, the Coaster Challenge podcast is going to explore how we go about surviving real-founded, large-scale fear. Everyone who was alive that day remembers exactly where they were and what they were doing. This is certainly true for the person I'm sitting down with today. Welcome back to the Coaster Challenge podcast, Chuck Cole. Hello. Hi there, Chuck. Hi. <laughs> how are you? Okay, thank you. Absolutely. So, so Chuck, so our listeners kind of understand some of the context here. So you and I, as well as David, who is, uh, of course, in the, as he always is in the background here producing the show, uh, we were at Hollywood Nights with a whole bunch of our other friends. And it turns out just by chance that you and your son Chase were staying in the same hotel as David and, his, and I. We, we didn't plan that in advance. It just worked out that way. So we wound up spending a lot of time together. And I remember the second night, the Saturday night of the event, after getting back to the hotel, what was it, two in the morning or whatnot, after all those great rides on night rides on Voyage, Trimless Voyage, you know, we had you, myself, and David, Chuck, Chase was, of course, asleep, but the three of us, you, you, David, and myself, we had a, what was it, a two, three-hour conversation out in the front of the hotel there, just great dynamic conversation. And one of the things that came up just by chance was you mentioned something very interesting that connects you in, a, in an interesting way to the attacks of 9-11. And so that's why we're talking to you today. So to start with, Chuck, why don't you tell our listeners, where were you? On September 11, 2001. I was in New York City on the island of Manhattan in Midtown. Uh, a lot of people know the Today Show. It's at Rockefeller Plaza. NBC, their 30 Rock is, you know, the big, big, big building there where you see the, uh, the famous statue and the, the ice skating rink. And just one block south of that, right across the street, is 10 Rockefeller Plaza. And that's where the Today Show is. That's where they film the Today Show, right there at that ground level. And that's where you always see the crowds and people, you know, celebrating their birthdays. Well, I was working for uh, a branding advertising company at the time. I'd been working there for a while, spent seven years in working in Manhattan. 
up on the third floor, actually, right ab above the Today Show. That's where I was on 9-11. And for people who don't really know the city that well, you know, that area is kind of, you know, our buildings between 48th and 49th Street. Those are crosstown streets kind of south to north and between 6th and 5th Street and, you know, kind of from east to west kind of, you know, again, those streets there. And that location uh, is, uh, I don't know, like as a crow flies, maybe about three and a half miles to, to four miles, depending if you have to drive away from the, the Twin Towers at that time. Right. And that's where I was. And to provide a, a little bit more context, I'd gotten in early that day. I was managing a, a large team and I was taking two of my most senior managers on my team to breakfast uh, at the Rock Center Cafe there. It's kind of ground level with the, the ice skating rink, almost as a treat. We we're going to be planning some, some big projects coming up. And so we decided to come in early and, and kind of meet, you know, and then kind of get back going at the office. And I was in the office at that time. Right, right. And also maybe another reference for our listeners, because not everyone has been to New York, is very familiar with New York. Rockefeller Center, and that's also where the ice skating rink is, of course, the famous ice skating rink. That's a, about 10 blocks or so north of Times Square and the theater yes. district. And so it's kind of the beginning of that kind of busy area that goes from, again, the Rockefeller Center, the ice skating rink down into Times Square, into the Greenwich Village and, 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 and so forth, and then getting into lower Manhattan, where the World Trade Center and the financial district is. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. The Man and Manhattan Island is a, is a pretty sizable island. It's what, a couple miles across and maybe, what, 15, 20 miles long, north to south, something like that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it's packed with people. It's one of the most populated places on the planet. So and we'll, we'll kind of get into some of how that impacted things that day for you as well, of course. So talk to us, you know, you're there early for breakfast. And of course, we all know everyone is very well aware of what happened that day. And, and the timing of it was in the morning. So talk to me, talk to us about how things progressed from that breakfast into where you first learned about what was going on and what was happening in Lower Manhattan. Yeah. So I, I got back to the office. I, I don't know, it must have been just after eight o'clock or so after my breakfast meeting, kind of working through my emails, getting hundreds of emails a day and <laughs> spam and everything. And, and then I got a, a, a message from one of the guys I was having breakfast breakfast with telling me that a plane had hit one of the, t the towers. And initially I kind of thought he was joking, but I recalled that somewhere long ago, you know, a small plane had hit the towers before. So I was like, oh, maybe this is an accident. What's going on? So I called him right back and said, hey, let's go meet in the, the conference room where we can turn on the TV and watch the live, live coverage from the uh, Today Show from NBC just below us. And so right. we and, and, to, and to be clear, to be clear, Chuck, at this point, you want to see what's going on. But but you and, and like many people, pretty much everyone, you know, like you said, a plane previously, I think even back in the 70s, right after the World Trade Center was finished, you know, a small plane, just like a commuter plane hit the, hit the towers. No, no big deal. But, you know, a single plane hitting the towers, they're very tall buildings. It could happen. So you like again, like most of us were thinking at that point, it, maybe it was just an accident. You weren't thinking of something. awful. Yeah, because. Yeah, Right. Yeah, exactly. Because even the Empire State Building has been hit by a plane in the fog. 
Right, so right. It's not, it's actually, you know, something that happens accident wise. And so, but we wanted to see what's going on and we're right above the Today Show. We have this great conference room with the live TV. And so it's like, let's go see what's going on. Like, this is a, a big, huge news event and it's our city. We're right here. And, and so we went in and we were there within just a couple minutes. Um, you can already see on the news coverage, smoke coming from, you know, really high up. Cause I think it hit really high up. Those, those towers are about, I think 110 floors. And I think it hit somewhere in the nineties, you know, the, the, the North tower. And so it, you couldn't see like a big, huge jet hanging out of it. You know what I mean? Per se, when right. you just call the smoke. Right. And right. And so we're sitting there watching some other people are hearing the news or coming also into the, the conference room. We're all kind of glued to the TV and, you know, they're getting more angles of what's going on there. At that point, I don't think they had any replays or anything going to show that, you know, the, the scale of, of the accident yet. And then it seemed like almost just a couple minutes after we were watching it, but it was about, I think, 15 minutes after we kind of were or watching it just I think right after nine o'clock if I recall correctly that we saw because they all the cameras are pointing there right downtown with those views we saw the impact of a big it looked like a big plane hitting the other tower right so the north tower was hit first at 8 46 a.m yeah and that was the and that was what you didn't see that live, of course. That's what your coworker called you about. And then now, then you started watching the TV a few minutes later. And then, like you said, pretty quickly, you just maybe 10, 15 minutes later, if you started watching in, the, in that conference room at 9.03 a.m. is when the South Tower was hit by a second jet. Yeah. And, and so it was pretty, it was 15 minutes apart, basically. I mean, that's, it, it yeah, yeah. like boom, boom, almost, because we were just starting to watch the coverage. Right. Everyone's sitting there talking, speculating what's going on. And then it was almost unbelievable, like you're watching a movie, that you see this plane hit the other tower. And they immediately rewind it and put it in slow-mo almost. And you can see that it is a large jet. Yep. Twin and, engine, right? Right. You know, and, and it was... And it was lower and it was like more like, it was like blatant. And, and the tone, everyone was kind of in, immediately, I think, in shock. Like for right, a right. minute or two, like, what are we seeing? This is very, very unusual. It's almost like, is some, are we getting punked? You know, are, like, what is going on? It's like, is this like the old War of the Worlds where people are hearing like, uh, you know, stuff over, over a... Uh, you know, radio and they're just conning everyone. Like what, like what is going on? It was just so unbelievable because it is like, you know, you think you look at these two towers, especially working there for so long, they are like permanent. You kind of thought them as like the modern day version of the pyramids, right? Right, right. Them like being hit. And it only took a probably a couple minutes for people like, it became obvious that what's going on here is we're under attack. Right. We, we didn't know what to do at that point. Right. It's not an accident. Right. Somehow planes are hitting New York City at the kind of our biggest monuments are being hit and attacked. If it happened at 903, I'm saying around 905, people were like, 
very, you know, clearly understood what was going on. Now is the question of what are we going to do? What is, what is appropriate? How are we going to react? Because there were, you know, other man, like senior managers, kind of O-level managers. At the time, I was the chief knowledge officer in charge of technology and process at my company. So I was one of them. And we're like, what are we going to do? People are still coming in. I was working for a creative company. So a lot of people came in late, but there was some early people there. You know, we're sitting there trying to figure out what to do. There was other people in there. You could already sense that they were feeling some panic. There was other people that are obviously still in shock, maybe a little bit because everyone processes things differently at a different pace. Right. But there are also people that were seeing we're re- responsible here. This is our company. What are we going to tell the people that work for this company to do next? Right. And Americans, Chuck, you know, we have the luxury because, you know, uh, we, this country has, has a lot of strength, a lot of, of resolve and it's the world's strongest military and so forth. And we, we are very fortunate in this country. It's just not a third world country. And other than, I think maybe the closest thing would be something like an earthquake. Other than an earthquake or, you know, some, a, a natural disaster, which is sudden. So a hurricane, you know, we know it's coming. Uh, wildfires, you have a little bit of, of, of warning. It's tornadoes as well to some degree. But earthquakes are very sudden. Other than earthquakes, Americans, we don't deal with this sort of thing normally. This doesn't happen where we, we're dealing with a large-scale disaster. In this case, man-made, you know, very insidious and so forth. But you know, so a lot of us aren't ready for it. Like you said, people are in shock and so forth. And, and, and to your point of at 9.03, when the South Tower, when the second tower was hit, Anyone in, in that room with you or anyone in the world that at that point was still wondering what was going on, was it purposely an attack or an accident? Well, at 9.37 in the morning, I think at that point, everything was very clear and there should be no wondering, no you know, thoughts that it may not be an attack. At 9.37, the, what, at that point in, the, in time, what, six, seven billion people alive on this planet, all of us knew that this was an attack because at 9.37, the Pentagon was hit by a third plane. Yeah, and we 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 were already starting to act by then, and that right. was just like further additional like confirmation. But you know, the group I was in, and New Yorkers per se, they're super savvy. They they're not naive. Everyone around me, there's people in, a little in shock and a little bit panic. Everyone knew this was probably most likely a major terrorism attack because. You know, we've lived through, New Yorkers have lived through other terror attacks down at, you know, the towers there. Yeah, and yeah, the truck bombing, right, the truck right. Bombing. And it was, and obviously it's like New York City is a, a super huge media mecca. And so any terrorist, that is, has to be one of the spots that they would want to go after. So once I, I, again, you know, very quickly, we were trying to set up phone calls and calling people and people were calling us. And people, we were already kind of in the kind of the planning mode of trying to get people off the island because you, you could see people were, I'm not sure exactly when you started seeing people walking over like the Brooklyn Bridge and all that kind of jazz, but it, it wasn't too far before and too much after. It was obvious when, the, when we got reports that the Pentagon was hit. But when, when the Pentagon was hit, it kind of ratcheted up a huge notch of weight how they hit the Pentagon. And that was, right. at, that was at the point too, where it's like, how vulnerable are we? Is this like Pearl Harbor, like vulnerable? Like how do we miss this coming? You know, right. but 
that that didn't necessarily change the necessary the sense of urgency. It just like drove it like a stake inside your body that this is legit and we got to wake up and get going with whatever's happening next. And you could already tell based off conversations coming into the newsroom at NBC that they were already speculating what other potential soft targets could be hit next, thinking in terms of buildings, like right. buildings. And they were thinking Rockville Plaza, Empire State Building. Everyone started you know, very quickly, you know, rattling off all of these spots that could be hit. And, and that kind of set off, I think, potentially some additional panic to get, get going. Yeah. Now, now, Chuck, so a couple things here. So at, at 937, when the Pentagon was hit kind of in this kind of time period we're talking about now, where you're at in, in New York City at, at 10 Rockefeller Plaza there, the both, both towers, both World Trade Center towers were still standing. Yes. Now, for me, I am from New Jersey. Uh, New York City is my quote unquote hometown. I grew up 30 miles from New York City. I was there almost every weekend. That's my, that's my city. And so, so this day certainly affected me very personally as it did many thousands, millions of people. Uh, so, you know, again, some more than others have more familiarity or more connection to New York City or the Pentagon for that matter. But I was living at this point in time in Southern California, in San Diego. So I was three hours behind in terms of when I'm waking up and, and whatnot. And now when I woke up, it was a little bit later uh, and we're not quite there in terms of sort of the, the time frame here, we're trying to kind of go linearly. But I wanted to touch upon something you mentioned because I'm, I'm curious, because at this point in time, you're kind of thinking about, you're, ta- you're talking with your coworkers and whatnot there about wh- what to do, how to get out of the city. You mentioned about people walking across the bridges, seeing that on television. Now, when the people now, so, so people know there are New York City, Manhattan specifically, where this is happening. It's an island. Again, we talked about that earlier. Because it's an island, literally, it's an island. There are only two, well, really three ways to get off that island: by boat, by tunnel, or by bridge. And that could be you know, by tunnel and bridge. Could be a train. Could be a car and whatnot. Now, the Brooklyn Bridge. Forget about 9/11. Any day of the week, it is a unique bridge in that. It's got on the left and right side of it are is where the cars go. And in the middle of it is this very wide area where people can walk and that they can walk all the time. So you mentioned the Brooklyn Bridge specifically, but as I recall, at some point that day, the other bridges, the dozen plus bridges that connect Manhattan to New Jersey to the west and Brooklyn and Queens to the east, people were walking across those bridges. But at this point in time, this early in the morning, Chuck, were cars still being allowed across the bridges or was it just people to your knowledge? Yeah. What I remember is that within the city, there was still car traffic, okay, early in the process. But what we started hearing that they were going to close the bridges and tunnels to car traffic and to train traffic. Right. And right. so shutting down the subways because they weren't quite sure if there were sleeper cells in, they were speculating everything. There were sleeper cells that could have been on subways. There could have been car bombs going over bridges or in tunnels. Right. They they started locking down the island from that kind of threat um, very, very quickly because Again, I think that the leadership in, in New York City was looking at all possible eventualities because if they were that bold, be able to hijack planes and, and aim them into buildings and even hit the Pentagon, what else could be going on? And so I know that was 
their reaction. And so it's great that you can walk the Brooklyn Bridge, but that wouldn't have helped us much at all get back to New Jersey. Right. The other way, right. The other direction. Well, because, you know, going that direction, going west, you know, the George Washington Bridge is really, really far away. And it's the only bridge to New Jersey. Yeah. 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 Again, the, my initial idea was I'm hoping the ferries are going to be taking people over there. That's our best bet. I'm hoping otherwise we're going to have a long trek up to the bridge and who knows how that's going to go down. But yeah, it's that all those things were in my mind soup at that time when I was trying to, to figure out, you know, not only making sure the people that I was responsible for had a plan, you know, how was I going to get off the island, which kind of leads to another major concern of mine at the time is that my, my brother-in-law was in the city at that time with one of his colleagues. And I knew the day before he was downtown. I had no clue what I was going to do and how I was going to deal with that whole other issue. Yeah, now that's very interesting, Chuck. And not to make light of this, but just to kind of set the perspective, you know, you and I have had a number of conversations in person on the phone and text message over the past couple of years since we've gotten to know each other. And one of the things that we've shared with each other is we have a lot in common. One of those things is we both like dystopian movies, sci-fi movies and so forth. And, and certainly one form of a dystopian movie, certain, you know, if you will, set in current times usually, is your typical, your Dean Devlin, Roland Emmerich disaster movie, you know, like The Day After Tomorrow, Independence Day and things like that. Though usually what happens in those is it's centered around a family or a couple of groups of people and something happens. And then there's these additional complications because those people have other people somewhere else, maybe even close to wherever it is that happened, happened, and they've got to go take care of them. So what you're unfolding here, Chuck, it, it and this really points to the seriousness of this and the the uh, the emotion, the fear and so forth, which we'll get into later, I know, because that's a big part of what I want to talk about here. There's there's so much here. It, it sounds like one of those movies. And that's and that really points to the intensity of all of this. Yeah, exactly. Because one of the things that was top of mind for me is I'm not leaving this island without my wife's brother, right? I cannot leave until I get him wherever he's at. He doesn't know the city as well. He's not used to the city. He's younger. I got to find him no matter what, you know, however long it takes. Right. Find him. Yeah. And and also to set the stage, because some of our listeners are younger listeners. Again, this is something that happened 20 years ago. This is 2001. In 2001, the second generation cell phone networks were just getting started. The, you know, the first digital phones and digital capable phone service and cell towers, et cetera. This is just about five years or so-ish after when cell phones started to become mainstream. So we're not talking about today where we had social media and we had internet capability with our phones. We were lucky we could text back then. And so, you know, very primitive wireless communication services. So obviously, Chuck, you now, you have enough of a challenge just in terms of how am I going to get off this island that's being locked down? And we should make it clear, by the way, again, for our listeners, that the, the island of Manhattan was not getting locked down because they were trying to keep everyone on the island or keep people off the island. It was about preventing additional damage. Again, there have been repeated attempts with uh, truck bombs, for example, to take out the bridges in New York City, especially the George Washington Bridge. 
because that's the only bridge to New Jersey. And uh, Rudolph Giuliani, who was the mayor at the time of, of New York City, who did a great job that day, and his team and, and all President you know, Bush at the time, leaders and so forth, they were, they were, you know, again, they had to react quickly. And I think overall, a lot, there was a lot of, you know, good job done here. But here in the leaders of Manhattan, again, Giuliani, et cetera, they acted quickly, shutting down the trains, the subways, the bridges, the tunnels, because the tunnels, there have been attempts to attack the tunnels too. And of those attacks, one would just reap even more fear amongst thousands, amongst millions of people, but also kill, literally could kill hundreds, if not thousands. Any of the bridges, people walking across the bridges, people driving across the bridges, the George Washington Bridge, for example, it's, I think, what, three or four lanes each direction, each side, but it's two levels. There's two levels of traffic. It's a huge bridge. Lots of cars and trucks and buses can be on it. So a lot of damage can happen, you know, to human life. So a lot of people believe that if they would have attacked the the bridges, especially that bridge, that would even done more damage to the economy, to the psyche, to almost everything. They they picked the easy target because the buildings are so big, but all those things were really top of mind for all the people in charge of anti-terrorism in in the US and and specifically New York and New York City. And so that's everything ground to a halt. They weren't telling people to stay there saying, get off the island however way you can, but they had to deal with these major targets because information was limited. And you can imagine when they're kind of going through their planning process and they see that the Pentagon was hit. They're probably like, no way. How did that happen? Yeah, right. one, of the, one of the nation's most most protected, safest buildings, crit, most critical buildings to our, our Department of Defense. I mean, and again, that was a very symbolic target by the terrorists that day, of course. Yeah. Uh, in that way. Yeah. But, yeah. And so so that was that was uh, definitely something that was part of the situation and trying to figure out what how are we going to get off this island? Because you couldn't just take the normal approach by any means. Right. And right. further complicating it that I had to go find a needle, you know, in a haystack. And I wasn't sure exactly if we'd be able to coordinate. I remember Michelle, my, my wife, she was uh, commuting to AT&T where she was working to, uh, where, where she was working at the time. And when she found out, and so I, I started communicating with her and she started trying to communicate with her brother. We were trying to see if we could square up a meeting place. And the most obvious meeting place was Rockefeller Plaza right there above the, the ice skating rink. That was a major, major thing that we lucked out is that cell coverage was was working and was okay during that. We, we didn't have the ability just let's start sending texts or check social media or anything like that. Because again, they, these were basic flip phones and you could get away with some of that, but it wasn't necessarily consistent. So, you know, the limited cell technology we had was helpful, but I can't imagine what would have happened if we wouldn't have had that limited technology even then. Um, Right, right. Yeah. And actually, and to that point, Chuck, and I hate to think like this, but you can imagine if, if September 11th didn't happen and those towers are still up today, if terrorists, you know, the same group, Al-Qaeda, for whomever it may be, were to try this now, I hate to say this, but I bet what they would do is, you know, the same targets, okay, fine. But they would also do a cyber attack at the same time to try to take down the power grid, trying to 
take down the cell networks, the internet, social media, because those, th- that right there, while that doesn't kill any people directly at all, just those cyber attacks, cyber attacks can be even more dangerous because of, of the hysteria and panic and, and so forth that it can create. And there's been movies about that and so forth. So Chuck, before we get into further about you getting in touch with your brother-in-law and how you were able to, to get to safety and get him to safety and, and so forth. I really would like to understand, especially given the mission of our podcast here at Coaster Challenge, take us through what was going through your mind through this, in this, you know, you know, late, almost nine o'clock, heading towards 10 o'clock. The ta- both towers have been hit. They're both standing. The Pentagon's been hit, as we've been talking about. I mean, these are, we don't, thank, thank God, we don't deal with these things every day. These are hopefully what are once in a lifetime events. These, this is Pearl Harbor 2.0 happening. You know, people, we don't deal with this every day. We don't deal with this. Some people don't ever deal with this in their lives. So this is unprecedented. This is next level fear. This is real fear. These attacks are happening. Thousands of people are dying, many of them instantly when those planes hit. So take us through what was going through your mind, the fear you're experiencing, how you were dealing with it, what you were concerned about, and how, most importantly, really, and the, and the positive kind of other end of this, how do you rise to the occasion to power through it mentally in your head? Well, it's something, it's it's definitely not like a, a live shooter event, like you potentially experience and you heard of today where you're in a bar or a club or even in a classroom and you start hearing gunfire. Right. So that's one thing. Big picture when, uh, you know, I was there, what's, what's critical, no matter what kind of live situation you're experiencing, and again, whether it's something like this or a, tur- a hurricane or an earthquake, or whatever else, is somehow you've got to convince yourself as quickly as possible that it's going to be okay. Because you need to get beyond any potential panic or shock, which is usually, and I was a little in shock. I wasn't panicked, but I wasn't in shock because I wasn't quite sure what I was seeing on TV. It just didn't seem real. Surreal. Right. Right. Yeah. And because I think I've told you before, but I used to also live right across from t- t- the Twin Towers in Paulus Hook in Jersey City, right, right there behind the Colgate clock. And I used to walk to the, the path train at Exchange Place, which is right across from uh, the, the trade center there in the Twin Towers. And so that was during when I was in an internship and I would see it every day, just like the Statue of Liberty and I'd see Statue of Liberty and it's our freedom. And then you see our market might, you know, and it's like a a monument to our capabilities in the Twin Towers. Right. So there was some real emotion there where I just, it just didn't seem real. And then, but a couple seconds later, and and it's like, and this is what's critical. It's like, well, what does this mean? Because now you're in an unknown situation. And that's where, you know, in my head, I remember saying to myself, you know, it's going to be okay, right? And to give a little background, I, at that point, I've had military training. Mm, okay. So, you know, I was, I, you know, all the, pretty much all the males in my family in, in my past have served and been in Vietnam and been in World War II. And so, and I, I went infantry and it was part of the reserve so I could go complete my, my boot camp during the summer months. 
And I did that when I was between years in college. And so I, I had training, infantry training down in Fort Benning, Georgia in the army. And so I, I had some training and, and, and a lot of times what they tell you is you got to remain calm, but that's easier said than done. <laughs> right. In a situation <laughs> like this, but right. When you're, when you're dealing with live fire in those scenarios and all the training and all these different people trying to focus on staying alive, just surviving boot camp, you know, remaining calm and somewhat collected is important. But still, when you're faced with this situation, it's uh, you kind of have to go through these steps, kind of like denial and ex- acceptance and like being mad or angry or whatever it's going through that you got to get yourself where you're, you're thinking, Right. And a huge part of that is also helpful is, is breathing. A lot of people hold their breath in these kind of situations and oxygen right. feeds your brain and you need your brain to kind of come with a, a plan. I was kind of just trying to do that. And then very quickly assessing the situation, my assessment at the, at that time, even though there's all these rumors, just knowing how these situations can sometimes bring out the best in people. It could also right. bring out the worst in people, right? You know, because a lot of people, you know, they, they use their imagination in the worst case scenario. They like, they imagine the worst because they're, again, they're fighting shock and they're afraid. And so I was kind of fearful of that chaos. Not that I didn't think like people in New York and that New Jersey people and all that couldn't rise to the occasion, but I was thinking it's very possible that this could get out of hand very quickly. I was not afraid of being shot. It wasn't helpful to be afraid of a plane hitting me because what can I do to avoid that? Right. And so I said, I just got to figure out a way to come with a plan to see if I can get off the island. Because if I can get off the island, there's probably gonna be less chaos off the island than on the island. And and seeing all these movies, these dystopia kind of end of world scenarios, you just see all these people yelling and screaming and leaving and just going wacko and just chaos. And you started seeing some of that on the TV, even then that like people were confused, like the anchors were confused. They were in shock. They were right. like these New York, hardcore New York people were just like, what's going on? And you could see fear and you can hear fear in their voices. Yes, I remember and, that. And so I was like, if this is, if they, these professionals are feeling this way, what are the citizens that are on the island right now feeling? That's what I was afraid of is being in one of those circumstances, having to deal with people that are panicked or in shock and having to kind of make my my way through that to come up with some way to, to get off the, the island. And so that have all that thinking and all that happened within like the, those first five minutes after we saw second plane hit the tower and it became very obvious that this day was going to be very, very unique day in the history of the, the U.S. And the world for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but yes. it's definitely for Americans that are highly confident that we're not vulnerable. And it, it just, it did have a feel of like a Pearl Harbor scenario that somehow we were caught unaware and, un, and ill-prepared. And right. how could we allow something like this to happen? And that's what it felt like. That's where I was just those five or so minutes afterwards, kind of working through my emotions, my fear, and trying to get myself in a, in a frame of mind to, to figure out what to do. And that's a luxury a lot of times people don't have, by the way. Right. Like in an active shooter situation, you have seconds to deal with. And that's 
you yeah. know, that's something we can go on later. But I'm saying those scenarios, you first got to to say, hey, it's, it's going to be okay. You got to somehow trick yourself into to getting to a calm and more collected situation, making sure you're not holding your breath and breathing so your brain can start assessing your situation and figuring out what you should do next. Yeah, so, so absolutely. So Chuck, I'd like to unpack a few things you've said there, some really good, good, uh, good things you've mentioned. So first of all, one of the last things you talked about is, and I mentioned this earlier, and countless people right after September 11th, then the the days, the weeks, the months, the years that have followed have compared as I did earlier and used as you did, compared the attacks of, of 9-11 to Pearl Harbor. And I called it Pearl Harbor 2.0. And certainly there's some similarities for the scale and so forth. But one interesting difference and you talk about your military training, is Pearl Harbor, it was a, you could look at it as a conventional act of war. Things like that have happened before where one country will attack another country that is not at war with that other country at that point, and that brings them into war with each other. And that's what the Japanese did. They brought us into the war. Uh, they were compelled to, and that's, there's geopolitical things that were going on over too that were that led them to that. And they primarily attacked military targets. And the majority of the thousands of people that died today were, were sailors and, and, and people in the military. Still very sad, very unfortunate. 9-11, though, was in a completely different level because the people that were attacked that day were just everyday citizens, men, women, children. Lots of children died that day. And that's the, the pain that we felt as a country, as a nation, and as a world, many of our allies, countries that were typically against the U.S. or not, not, not very much allied with us, became allied with us because at the on that day, it wasn't so much that we were U.S. citizens and there were British people and Iranians and Egyptians. We were just people on this planet and these awful things were happening. And we were in, in that way instantly united because these awful things were happening. But in any case, going back to the, one of the first things you said in terms of how you were dealing with this, Chuck, you mentioned that you had to convince yourself and really focus on that things were going to be okay. And, and I just want to unpack that. My interpretation of what you're getting at there is, is really it's a binary situation. You can either say that things are going to be okay or the things are not going to be okay. Well, if you're going to go with things are not going to be okay, it's a defeatist attitude. You're giving in. You're not going to really want to make the best decisions or really fight to do the best things for yourself and the people that you're trying to help. Whereas if you say that things are going to be okay, you may not know. I mean, certainly that day, the sub 300 million Americans at that point in time, population of the country, normally we, most of us know we're going to make it through the day. Most likely we get hit by a bus. We could have a heart attack, but most, you know, the vast majority of us are going to make it through. 9-11, all bets were off. Because yeah, now we know 20 years later, the two towers were attacked, the Pentagon was attacked, and they failed attack thanks to Todd Beamer and other brave souls on board United 93 were able to prevent attack on the U.S. Capitol, either the White House or the Capitol building itself. Thank God they stopped that. Those are true American heroes, world heroes right there. But nonetheless, four planes were, were the weapons of choice that day. But we didn't know that that day. No one knew that. This caught the CIA. This caught the our military, our government officials, everyone, every citizen of this planet by surprise. 19 people and some other people that supported with Al-Qaeda, they knew what was going on. They knew the scope of it, but we didn't. And for all we knew, 10 Rockefeller Center or 30 Rock was going to be attacked. Statue of Liberty. You know, I, I was in California, in San Diego. San Diego is a 
huge military city. We've got the Marine Corps at Miramar. We've got 32nd Street, Coronado. We've got one of the largest Navy bases in the planet. Most of the time, there's not one, not two, but three aircraft carriers stationed there. I mean, huge military target. I, I was concerned that San Diego was going to be attacked. The Golden Gate Bridge, Transamerica Pyramid, downtown LA, Hollywood. Who knows? So many symbolic targets. So all bets were off. But to your point, Chuck, the best thing to do is you can't know if you're going to be okay, but you have to act as if you're going to be okay. Otherwise, you're just giving up. And so you have a choice of either giving up or let's let me act, let me move forward with the hope that I'm going to be okay. And let me do my best to make that happen. Is that kind of what you're getting at, Chuck? Yeah, it's it's kind of the placebo effect where, you know, so- soldiers on the battlefield that are really injured and most likely to, are going to die. The medics usually still go over to them and want to give them every chance. And they say, you're going to be okay. It's one of the things, you know, first responders do is because if you're in shock, or you're panicked and you're not calm, you're less likely to be okay, right? Because your your body responds a certain way if when it's calm and where you're bre- deep breathing and your body's functioning as best as it can. But when you're holding your breath or when you're really afraid, everything gets tight and you put yourself in kind of the worst case scenario and you want to put yourself in the best case scenario. And even if you're seeing it over and over again, and it may not be okay, but the more you can tell yourself to do that, I think you're buying yourself time to maybe have options going forward that you wouldn't have had otherwise if you were panicked or not in a rational position or still in shock. Because that's usually what happens is you just kind of go off the deep end in a lot of ways, and you're no longer able to think clearly. And what happens, unfortunately, that panic is contagious. If you tell yourself, okay, you're okay, then you can start telling other people that they're going to be okay. And hopefully then they will keep telling themselves and then others that they're going to be okay. And then you can actually start together trying to make your situation better off than it would otherwise be. So you don't, again, create a whole crowd getting, getting panicked. And I also want to make something really clear here too is my situation was extremely different than the people that were there that morning, the people that were very, very close to those Twin Towers downtown. Right. Their sense of urgency, what was going on there was literally second by second decisions were being made, whether they were going to to live or die. Some proud, brave souls took it upon themselves to really sacrifice themselves, not, not, not knowingly necessarily, but some of them kind of knowing when they were trying to help other people in those buildings, trying to help people around those buildings, increase the chance of survival. And those were, their situation was extremely different than my situation in, in Midtown, about four miles away, and everyone else off the islands. There was some little bit differences in the, the Pentagon and definitely the people on that, that plane that just were able to sacrifice everything to make sure it didn't get go into the White House or who knows where. And so I just want to make sure people understand that I was really, really lucky to be where I was on that day. Right. And, yeah. And to have that much flexibility to make better decisions where I don't know how I would have necessarily acted if I was in one of those buildings. I hope that I would have acted the right way or how I would have approached the situation differently. I I think that's 
it important to, to say, because, you know, my situation was more unique than yours being in San Diego. Right. Right. Of course. Yours is even more urgent. These people, they are on the scene within blocks of that area, people in the building itself, all those, you know, first responders charge into those buildings to help people. Their level of, of fear, anxiety, and how they reacted just had such a, a different level of fight and, and bravery and in heroism than than my situation. Yeah, and that's a very good point. And certainly it wasn't your situation, but to touch upon that, when we talk about fear, anxiety, panic, there is fundamentally a binary choice at each moment that we're going through that elevated event, that stressful event, fight or flight, as you make, as you think about things, as you make decisions, consider options, it's fight or flight. Now for you, it was, it was one thing, and we'll certainly be talking more about that, but for the unfortunate people that were first and foremost in the towers that were right down there, it wasn't just the, the twin towers that were, that suffered. I mean, there were several buildings around there that were damaged as, as, as the events progressed that day and, and so forth. All those people down there, fight or flight, the firemen, the hundreds of firemen, just the initial responders. I'm not talking about the literal thousands of firemen and first responders from all over the country, from all over the world that were involved in the efforts, the attempted recovery efforts to recover people out of the rubble in the days and weeks that followed. I'm talking about, and that was an incredible thing as well, even the dozens upon dozens, perhaps even hundreds of dogs that were involved in that and the the bravery of them and and the sacrifice of them is a whole nother story. But just in this initial initial response, in this initial, as the, the towers were attacked and still standing at this point, early morning of September 11th, the, again, dozens upon dozens, hundreds perhaps of firemen that, again, in this scenario, I could understand why a fireman who is trained to be, to be, have to be brave. I mean, it's, it's, they're dealing with, with some of the most dangerous situations a human being can be presented with fire and smoke and so forth that, that any, and going to high heights and whatnot, that any human being may ever be presented with. But September 11th was a whole nother level. And I could understand why firemen that day, perhaps they, perhaps there were some that said, nope, I'm not, nope, this is, I can, no, I'm not being part of this 110 foot story building. No way. Two of these, nope, nope. Terrorist attacks, I'm out of here. But again, I, I think those are in the minority. So many of these firemen, they chose fight. And that's what they do. They're trained to fight, to, to not flight, to face any fear and anxiety, push it out of their minds. And, and then themselves say, I'm going to be okay. I have good training. I have great equipment. I have my teammates that support me and I support them. We're going to make this happen. Now, the reality is that many of these firemen were fighting, but they probably knew, given the scope of things, especially after, what was it? I think 10.03 a.m., I believe it was, when the South Tower collapsed. That, or excuse me, 9.59 a.m., just a few minutes before. That right there, I think for a lot of people, really put us in a much more somber place because then we were facing the stark reality of, oh God, these buildings, they're both going to collapse. Now this One of them already has, this other one's going to. So these firemen, especially after 9.59, going into the North Tower still, like, oh, they, they could very well lose their lives. And so many of these brave heroes lost their lives that day because of it. Then we have the, the civilians that don't necessarily have that training that are in the North and South Tower before they collapse above where the planes hit. And of course, we know the story there. Many of them and scores of them jumped to their deaths and they chose flight. And you know what? I, I, I understand. I mean, they that talk about hopelessness. These buildings 
still to this day are among, they would be if they still existed today, among the tallest buildings in this world with those huge fires that, that, that jet fuel still burning. There's no fire ladder truck that's going to get up there. Maybe helicopters could perhaps. The, the, the chance of them surviving was very small. And as they're dealing with perhaps the impacts of the fires of smoke inhalation, they wanted to end their lives quickly because they figured they were going to die. Now, those people, again, very unfortunate, the hundreds of people that were a above the impact points on those towers. Thankfully, they were in the relative minority. Most of the people were below the impacts and many did get out. Thank God they they jumped on those stairs and they got out of there and the firemen helped. And there were there's some great stories of, of true heroes that day that succeeded as heroes. Heroes don't have to, you know, heroes are not just heroes if they succeed. Heroes can be heroes just because they tried. And it's a huge thing to think about. But again, all this fight and flight going on. Well, now, and, for, and, yeah. well and just to, to add to that a little bit, to give additional context, uh, you know, the firefighters in New York City, Ravis crew out there, they're just amazing because people were still going into that north tower as that south tower was going down right and, and it's a little bit like i try to compare it to not that it's 100 this way but people that in the military when they they go into a combat zone that they know that they've significantly increased their risk of dying by being in this combat zone compared to if they were in a normal neighborhood environment or on base somewhere in the u.s they know every day they're going to be in a position where that there's going to be a life and death consequences and through proper training and through confidence of your, your platoon and your team and everyone else around you kind of understand how you're going to be there for each other and, and what your mission is and how you're going to approach things. And I'm just imagining, which is almost impossible to, to really know, teams of, of firefighters knowing when they see what's going on and saying, you know what, this is the worst case scenario that we've trained for, but we're here for ourselves and for the people here in the city. Who else is going to increase the probability that people are going to survive this? The, they were the only ones that were willing to do this. And they took that responsibility to the highest level because these aren't people that were just blindly following orders. You just don't blindly right. follow orders when you're in this situation. I just and, you make the choice. Yeah. And these, are yeah. Fam- these are people with families. Right. That have kids, they have pregnant wives, maybe, or husbands, and that care for them at home. And they're trying to save lives by putting their life on the line their families being altered permanently, but they took that job so seriously and so selfishly that they were like, you can only imagine the inner dialogue. They're saying, you know what? They had to be telling themselves, I could still survive this. I'm going to keep saving people as long as I can. Because if they were brutally honest themselves, it's hard to kind of get through that. I'm just saying, I can only imagine those that kind of hero mentality to say, I'm willing to pretty much jump on a grenade to save someone. Because that's what they were all doing, jumping on grenades when they kept going up and trying to save people, running it still into the North Tower trying to save people. It was yeah. just incredible. And 99.99% of the people in the US never have to really be confronted with that. But these people that the, the service members in combat zones, these firefighters, when they're dealing 
dealing with these crazy situations. This is the craziest one. It's just unbelievable how they're able to marshal their emotional and mental facilities to just do something that just doesn't make sense to do normally for everyone else in the world. Absolutely. And as tragic as September 11th was, and it was tragic, unprecedented, September 11th also was a day of heroes. And one of the things that I remember vividly it was it's so uncanny. Eight days before September 11th, Enrique Iglesias, who was kind of a rising star of kind of just getting started back then, he released an album which, amongst others, contained the the track Hero. And I remember, and it's a great song, and it has a special meaning to me and millions of people. It became the anthem of the, the, because again, it wasn't just that day. It was the days, the weeks that followed the recovery efforts, and then all the soldiers and so forth and the, and, and the, and the response and the war and terror and so forth. These are all heroes. And it, it was so poignant and just crazy that that song was released just eight days before, uh, just this crazy uh, coincidence. But, but in any case, going back to the fight or flight and you're talking about breathing, I did not experience a panic attack that day myself. I certainly was had anxiety. I mean, millions of people, billions perhaps had anxiety that day. Now, but I've experienced panic before. I've developed with uh, three clinical depressions in my life and the anxiety, the ping-ponging that goes along with that. As part of that, I've had panic attacks in those periods of depression. And yeah, I know what you're talking about. You, you, you stop breathing. You're just consumed with anxiety, consumed with worst case scenarios, and terror, you know, personal terror. When we talk about the reverse of that, of, of not being in a panic attack or getting out of one or avoiding one, the really the opposite, if you will, of panic attacks is mindfulness. And one of the chief ways to be mindful that you don't need any other tools for any help with is breathing is if you breathe, that is a mindfulness, you're focusing and focusing in your breathing that can keep you in the moment and not thinking about, for example, on September 11th, there's sort of this very recency type depression that can occur was going on thinking about what has happened. Oh my God, these thousands of people that have, have just been killed and you know, what, our country is it, what's going to happen with this or what has happened already. But then the, then the other part of it, and really what was a big thing for all of us that day was the anxiety is, oh God, what else, what other attacks are going to happen? What is, you know, how are we going to respond to this? How are we going to reconcile this? How are we going to recover from this as a nation, as a world? That ping-ponging, that that huge, unprecedented uh, being out, being uncentered, if you will, is very dangerous. And especially for, for people in New York City that didn't know if they were going to be safe. You know, to put things in perspective, in 2001, the civilian, the, the, the population of Manhattan, that's just the people that live there, was one and a half million people. One and a half million people. And this is a huge, and that's just, that's not all of New York City, that's just Manhattan. That does not count the many tens of thousands, perhaps even over 100,000 people that come into Manhattan to work, to commute, like you did that day, for example, Chuck. This is there's there's so much at stake here, so many lives at stake, even beyond the people that were directly impacted in the towers and in the Pentagon as well, by the way. You know, you talk about breathing. Breathing is the number one thing that people can do in extreme scenarios like this. And like you were saying earlier, talking about focusing on I'm gonna be okay, or even if you could say, you know what, I can be okay here. I'm gonna focus on being okay here. Because you know, maybe people some people listening. 
trying to, you know, think about God forbid things happening in the future. They have to deal with like this, that, you know, how can I say to myself, I'm going to be okay in a scenario like this. I get that. You could at least say, I'm going to focus on being okay here. I'm going to do everything I can to be okay here and breathing deep breaths and not thinking about, oh God, what other attacks are going to happen? Or how many people are, are dying today? Or what, how is the world going to change? And all these, uh, this uncertainty, which is the energy source of anxiety and is uncertainty is, you know what, thinking about those things, we can't know the future. It's and any day of the week, even on a good day on September 11th, forget about it. We couldn't know the future that day. Absolutely not. It was unprecedented. Again, what, what you and I are talking about here, Chuck, trying to Trying to educate the audience and, and share with people, you know, as you and I do, even on a personal level, just the two of us, you know, being kind of philosophical and whatnot. These are things that are easier said than done, but, you know, this is, takes training and practice. And Well, and I kind of think in terms of like visuals sometimes where kind of think of dominoes, right? And I've, I've said this before is fear and, and panic. That's like a failure of imagination. And so imagine every time you start entertaining these negative thoughts, it becomes this vicious cycle, but it's almost like your dominoes are falling. But every single time a domino falls, hits another domino, it's a bigger domino. And then the next domino is even bigger. And then the next domino is even bigger. And you kind of get yourself stuck in a hole because now right. the domino is going downhill. That's like a failure imagination. You're thinking of the pot, the worst case scenario. You're lying to yourself in all the wrong ways through this kind of false imagination story. Now, when you tell yourself and you start breathing correctly, where you're not holding your breath and you tell yourself it's going to be okay, the opposite happens. You start, dominoes start falling where it kind of takes you upstairs and you start building yourself some momentum to think, right? Where you start thinking, hey, what can I control versus something realistic Versus what I can't control that's completely unrealistic, right? right? Like, oh, the sky is falling. I look, it's blue sky. The sky's not falling yet, right? I look around me and there's there's not fire. I don't hear shots. Okay? Right, right. Um, there's no immediate danger for there's you. There's no immediate, right? not that all scenarios are like that, but a lot of scenarios, people panic because they imagine that all the whole world's going to cave in on them any second. And they, right. they ratchet it up, kind of creating this vicious cycle Versus more of a virtuous cycle, which is trying to use your imagination in, in the right way. If you're going to imagine things, imagine things like you will be okay. That's imagination. Right. You don't know for a fact that you're going to be okay. You're just going to imagine an outcome where you could be okay, right? And the more you convince yourself of that and deal with things in front of you, like right. second by second that you can't control, like, Oh, I can't control my breathing right now. That's something I control. I'm going to take a deep breath and let it out very slowly. I've just proven to myself now that I have control over something in this situation. And then you use that as some positive momentum to get you to the next moment, right? right. When you have moments. Because the first thing, if you're an active shooter scenario, it's a different, we could talk that later. But in the scenario where you do have a second to breathe and tell yourself it's going to be okay, and they get to the next moment, you're giving yourself positive options. And that's where you can start using your brain, your logical brain to start figuring out, well, what should I do next that I have control over? Right. right? Exactly. And, and that builds more that virtuous cycle where you, you gain steam. And just by saying, 
I will be okay or telling someone else I'm going to be okay, right? You're, you have these little tiny moments of bravery. They're, they're right. minute. They're tiny, tiny things, but you're building confidence. These tiny little things like, you know, something as simple as a roller coaster. I'm going to get close to the roller coaster. I'm going to stand in the queue and I'll go all the way to the end to see it. I will, I'll build these little steps where I feel I'm building confidence. I will actually say out loud that I'm thinking about riding that roller coaster. Today. All those things are positive moves. In, in, a, in a crazy scenario, a real fear scenario, you've just got to tell yourself, I'm going to make it another minute, another two minutes, another three minutes, whatever it may be to actually be able to use your brain to kind of figure out a plan to what you really should do next to kind of help you, help people around you, and definitely at a minimum, not make it worse. But yeah, right. that's, right. and that's why I'm just saying that fear, that's that fear is the start of panic. And then that's the start of chaos. And that's where you really start really losing control kind of exponentially. Yep. And it's hard to come back from that in, in the near term in these situations. So yeah, to your point, again, staying in the moment, breathing, which is keeping yourself in the moment and thinking about, okay, where I'm at right now, being situationally aware, what's going on, what's what do I know about the situation? Okay, this is going on a few miles away. Uh, it's awful, but okay, I acknowledge that, but I'm not going to think about that too much because I, I can't do anything about it. A few miles away, there doesn't seem to be anything going on here. Like you said, the active shooter analogy, but I need to get off this island because there's a lot of targets here. I want to get away from all the big targets as much as I can. Bridges and tunnels are closed. So, so you're again thinking about, okay, what are not my options and, and figuring out what your options then are. And I think the, the, the big thing I want to take away from this as far as what you were personally dealing with, Chuck, is your biggest concern was not necessarily another ta- attack or attack on Rockefeller Center, because you know if, if that's going to happen, then you're not going to be able to do much other than getting away from there, which you were planning to do. Your, your main concern was knowing the human psyche, human psychology, psychology 101, is how most people are going to react in a scenario, which unfortunately is not well. And you're in a city of a 1.5 million people and, and you know tens or hundreds of thousands of people visiting town, schools there, people coming into town like yourself for work, commuting in. Talk to us about how you keeping that in mind, your concerns there, how you proceeded, you know, here we, we know your brother-in-law's there colleague as well. Talk to us about how you proceeded with those concerns in mind. Well, get yourself in the right frame of mind. It's, it's all about creating checklists, like a kind of a, a to-do item. Like what do I need to do next? And checking those boxes kind of in your to-dos, like the next steps. And that's actually easier to focus on than everything that's just been going on. It's like, if you can analyze saying it, I didn't feel personally that I was under immediate threat uh, attack necessarily, but I knew that things could get out of hand very quickly. And so I wanted to figure out what I needed to do to make each next each next step happened. Talking to Michelle, knowing her brother, thank God was not downtown, but was more uptown somewhere. His colleague was somewhere. He didn't want to leave without his colleague, this who I hadn't met yet. She was somewhere south of Midtown, but we really didn't know. And so kind of through a, a telephone chain, I was talking to Michael through Michelle, because I was still trying to coordinate what's, what was going on at the office. And this is all before 10 o'clock. Okay. So right before the towers came down, yeah, right? either right. of them. Right. So, and, and at the same time, you know, I was trying to figure out like, is there anyone I'm going to be going with 
because it's, it's always better if you can in these kind of slow going situations to be with others kind of security numbers, especially if things are going to get out of hand with people in panic. It's always better to, to have people that are with you, just like in nature, the, the bigger of a group you kind of come across, the less likely people are going to kind of move in your direction and attack you. If you're just a single animal on the savanna, then you're kind of right. open target, <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> you know, and so, you know, a lot of animals, they look big, they make themselves look big. So they're not as an easy a target. So I had a friend who lived near me. I was like, you're coming with me we'll get <laughs> together. So wherever you can find someone to kind of join your side and someone who's not panic and they can help reinforce you as well and say, it's going to be okay. Yeah, it's going to be okay. And all that kind of common, kind of common thinking helps support you each other. And so two minds, two minds are better than one. Yeah. And and so, but I was telling him, it's like, I have my brother-in-law here and he's got his colleague and he wasn't necessarily uh, excited about having to wait. Right. 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 And, and so I was like, no, I got a cover. We're good. We're going to do it. So I'm just like selling him on waiting and oh, it wouldn't be bad if we had some, you know, other people with us and I got to get him. It's Michelle's brother. And, and thank goodness really quickly thereafter, probably a good 10, 15 minutes into all of this, they were both there first, her brother. And then we were looking at our watches. We're going to have to go. I'm hoping she's just going to be here soon. His colleague showed up and and I'm I'm just kind of thinking roughly the time frame. It was probably around a quarter till ten or so. Yeah. In that right. once the first tower was hit, Michelle was getting word, and she thought it was potentially an accident. But the first thing she was thinking about knowing the location is like where was her brother because she had no clue. Right. He was maybe downtown, and so she'd already been in the line with him, and he had already said that his other his colleague was somewhere. And so when I, the second plane hit and I was connecting with Michelle saying, I'm okay, but we're going to try to get off the, everyone's going to be going home and I'm going to be going with Kit, my friend. And he, she knew Kit. It's like my brother, you know, where should you meet? And I was like, Rockville Plaza. And so things were happening minute by minute. And somehow they were able to make their way to Rockefeller Plaza. As soon as they were there, I was like, okay, we're going this way. Stay with the plan. And the goal was to to head west to direction New Jersey, get to to potentially get a ferry right uh, across the right. river. Right? Chuck, if I if I could, yeah, if I could uh, just yeah, if I could stop you, yeah. So basically, you're going to try to go west, like you said, not use the George Washington Bridge because that would be you know a good well, six, seven six yeah. seven miles away walking because you can't use the subway. The subways are not operational at this point. And so you you were just doing the quicker kind of shorter walk half a mile or so because Manhattan is not, not really that wide. It's much longer and get over to the ferry, try and get a ferry. But before we get to that, I'm just curious, have you ever, whether it be back, you know, shortly thereafter or in the past, anytime the past 20 years, have you thought about what you have, would have done here? Because you have the unique situation. A lot of people that day, it was just themselves. You know, they, they drive into Manhattan or take a train in, they're by themselves. may have coworkers, but they're just going to get themselves out of there. Their family's back home in New Jersey, Connecticut, or wherever it may be, commuters and whatnot. But you had this unique situation where you're like, you know, I need to get my brother-in-law. You know, I am not leaving without him. Again, like that disaster movie scenario, which creates the additional plot lines and whatnot. Have you thought about what you would have done if, as we all were probably thinking was going to happen, we couldn't use the cell networks. They were busy, you know, lo- overloaded. Do you, have you thought about what how you would have handled things if you couldn't get through to him? 
Yeah. First of all, I would have been in, in a position where I would have had to tell my friend, just go on without. Me. Right. That would be it. And then I would have not left the island until I knew for a fact that Michael was off the island. I, I would have stayed in place because it was a central location, easy to find. Right. And if you've ever been in New York City, there's there are places that are obvious. This is one of the most obvious places to be is Rockefeller Plaza at the ice skating rink. Right. Such a focal point. And I would have stayed there until I he would have showed up because he knew where I work for a fact. And right. I was hoping, and if he wouldn't be able to get in contact with Michelle, that he his he because we had a pretty good relationship. He would have uh, my assumption was unless he was told otherwise by certain officials, he would have tried to make his way there. Right. And, right. And I was not going to leave him hanging. And so good for you. I, yeah, so I would have been there. I'd probably been in front of the Today Show and somewhere like right there at the corner because there's that corner right there at the Today Show. Right, so right. They see over to where the ice skating, ice skating rink was at one level lower so I could at least orient myself to see that. And I would have been li- looking in all directions nonstop every minute thereafter waiting for word or waiting to, to, to see him. The, the only unfortunate question that I was hard to answer is yeah. if he did ever eventually get there and we had no way of figuring out a way to coordinate to find his friend. Right. Like what we, we, what would we have done at that point? And I would have had to trust Michael's judgment to a certain extent based on his understanding of what his friend would do, how we'd approach it. Because normally even outsiders kind of probably had an inkling that they had to figure out a way off the island. New Yorkers are just, a lot of the the more New Yorkers are going to like, hey, I'll, you know, there are people that are going to help. And right. say, just come with me. Oh, I got to meet up with someone. No, you'll never find them. Needle in a haystack. You, if you can't contact, you can't call them. They may already be off the island. And so kind of going through those scenarios, at what point do I try to get him safe and, and keep waiting because, you know, Michelle was highly anxious about the whole situation. Oh, of course. I mean, we all were. Yeah, so she right. She was right. kind of thinking more worst case scenario than, oh, it's going to be okay. I was telling her it's going to be okay. And, you know, she was not okay with the situation, me being, because uh, she knows the, you know, Manhattan really well. And she knows right. a lot of ways off the island. And that uh, worst case, I could be stuck there for a while where I'd have to right. go all the way up to George Washington and walk the bridge. And then who knows how long that would take and the chaos surrounding, you know, crossing the bridge. Cause right. at this point in time, when I'm just, we're heading over to, you know, the Hudson river to get across over to New Jersey, no one knew at that point what we were going to find along the river. Right. No one knew if we could get across the river from there. I knew that that was my cut. I was going to go there first and see, assess the situation because I was half imagining not positive stuff. I was thinking, what if people are just jumping on to these boats and just overloading them and who knows people getting into fights to get on them, kind of thinking about like the Titanic people trying to get on. I was just thinking that. Yeah. Life preservers, you know, just jumping and going all crazy and who cares about women and children first I'm getting on. So I was trying to, I was playing that back and forth in my head in that best case scenario when we were starting to head out away from, from Rockefeller Plaza. And so, but, but up until that point, thinking about what, how I was going to approach this, I, I, and 
I could, I couldn't have had a luckier situation happen for me. Everything worked the best way possible. Yeah. And, and in point, a way at that point in time, in that point in time, I was able to coordinate a meeting point. The meeting point happened really timely because depending on where these guys were, no way it could have taken an hour to get to me. Right. right. And all that. Cause they could have got confused, turn around. It's not like people had just like easy maps and you could just right. pretty logical still there, but you could be going the wrong way for all, you know, for a while and they get confused and disappointed and who knows what could have been going on. So it couldn't have, it couldn't have gone better up to that point in my mind. Yeah. And, and also, and also, you know, we didn't, this is before GPS, at least civilian GPS. I think at that point, some military GPS satellites were, were in use in, in orbit, but, you know, again, this is before GPS units were available. This is long before smartphones and, and the, you know, and mobile internet. But, you know, in a way, like you said, you were in a good position, much like in, we kind of compared a little bit here today with the natural disasters, like say a hurricane, where people, when they get evacuated, they're not going hundreds of miles away, at least when they go to evacuation centers, if they're told where to go by authorities. They go a few miles away, a few miles inland, away from the ocean. And when, so you were a few miles away from where these attacks happened. So you were not, in, as we talked about earlier, immediate danger. It's not like you were in one of the World Trade Center towers, you know, in the first few floors. Obviously, in that scenario, you would have, I'm sure, gotten out of there, you know, and whatnot. And then not, I don't think anyone was going to stay in those buildings. If a building is on fire, you get out. I mean, that's just a common human survival 101. But yeah, thank you. I just was curious, kind of the what if kind of things that you're going through there. So meanwhile, so, okay, so you're proceeding, your brother-in-law, his coworker, you've got this kind of friend of yours, coworker, that's kind of this big, burly guy, kind of protective, smart guy, level-headed. So you got your team and you're headed west towards the the uh, various uh, uh, ports the various piers and whatnot that are on that line the hudson river along the west side of manhattan and how long did it take you to walk over to where well it, it's it's actually it's not so close i kind of looked at it again it's over a mile it's over a mile okay okay to, to, to get there and i remember it took us we were going at a good clip because i wasn't sure exactly what was going on and yeah. i'm a fast walker right me too so, yeah <laughs> And so I was like, we got to, we got to get there as soon as uh, we can, because I have no idea. I was preparing everyone for the worst a little bit. And I have no idea what we're going to find when we get there. So the right. sooner there, the sooner we can figure out what's going to happen next. Right. And, Time is of the essence. Right. Right. Yeah. And so we hauled over there and I, I, I don't imagine it took us more than 15 minutes. It was less than 10, but by the right. time we got there, it had to have been after 10 o'clock. Right. We could see smoke, significant smoke coming from downtown. From that angle, I keep trying to remember what we could actually see. And if you remember, it's Manhattan's kind of has an elbow. Right. There and downtown. So it kind of like curves in. And so from that perspective with the smoke, I don't remember necessarily recall being able to see it per se, but in my mind, sometimes I do see it, but I don't know how real that was necessarily, but I just, I just remember seeing the smoke and finding out that the first tower fell. This is what well, the actually was the second tower that was hit the South tower, right? Well, been, yeah, but I've seen yeah. the first tower had fell. The first I know of it was them, the second, right. 
again, right. if you remember, the second tower of this hit was hit lower. Right. Right. And I think that right. was a big situation where that may have caused the draining of all that, filling of all that fuel may have been able to deteriorate the building faster than the one that was hit up higher, maybe. I have no idea. But Well, my guess is that I'm an engineer. I'm not a civilian right. engineer. I'll, I'll, I'll disclosure here for our, our, our audience. But since that one was hit lower and you've had this impact, all that jet fuel, super high temperatures, where it could even burn the, the, the steel core of these buildings. And, and, and again, just a quick aside, the, the World Trade Center, which was completed in uh, 1973, I believe, it was built for, about, took about five or so years to build them. They were the skyscraper Titanic of their day. The way they were built, there was this new way to construct buildings, super tall buildings. They were considered, they were, they were built and, and, and architected in preparation for a plane to hit them. Not to say purposefully, but because of how tall they were, a plane could hit them. And so that was part of the design process. You know, there's been all this aftermath, all these studies, but, you know, they maybe didn't consider the jet fuel and how high temperature it burns at, blah, 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 blah. But bottom line is my, maybe my guess as to what happened here is because that South Tower was hit at a lower height and you've got all this core right there of the building getting burned, you had more weight up above that was no longer being supported because that core at that height was being burned and, and melted away. And then you had a high, a more, more material, more building, more floors of building above that started coming down and a higher level of weight where it just collapsed quicker. That's my theory. But it, whatever the case may be, the South Tower came down at 9.59 a.m. Now, when you left 10 Rockefeller Center, you gave up your instantaneous availability information. Because again, this is before mobile internet. This is just digital cell phones had just come out. We barely had text messages. You didn't have your TV. I'm assuming you didn't have a portable TV with you. Those are even kind of rare. How did you know in that moment, seeing that smoke at just after 9.59 a.m., that the South Tower had collapsed? Well, you could see the smoke because smoke rises. Right. And the people, okay, let me just set the, the stage yeah, here. Sure. So we, we, we get there, pretty much people know that kind of shoreline there, if you call it that. Right in that area, a lot of people know the Intrepid Kennedy Museum, right. kind of aircraft carrier there. Right, World War II, yeah. Yeah, just north of there's all these piers. And so between like that, like 45th to like 55th Street, there's all these piers there. That's where we were kind of heading, hoping to, we didn't know what we'd see when we got there. But right. once we got there, we saw a huge queue of people in lines right like ferry service to go across and it looked like all the ships that were kind of marshaled over there were ferrying people over to kind of the Weehawken or you know New Jersey side because that's like Hoboken where, over like, there like right just north right. the Hoboken's Weehawken right and because it kind of goes Jersey City and then Hoboken and then I think Weehawken there's all these boats there and so once we got there we knew that okay this looked like a promising situation. We're probably just going to have to wait. Right. And so we got into that queue like right away. Right when we got in the, in the queue, you could start still looking downtown and people are talking, rumors, everything. And people are saying it's kind of hard always to understand that the smoke flumes, but everyone at that time was saying one of the towers have 
fallen. We didn't know what tower. Right, of course. Because of the way the smoke reacted, because it was different kind of smoke versus the smoke of the burning the fuel kind of coming out, cycling up versus when the fell a different kind of plume of smoke, I think, went up and not just out. And so that was our assessment at the time. Given right. everyone that was there and they were talking and everyone just kind of crazy. Some people were kind of in shock. Some people were still a little bit panicked. Some people were kind of more calm collected. Just like in a in a queue for a, a coaster, there's... <laughs> switchbacks and so you're talking to all these different types of people as you're of course switchbacks somewhere along that queue it was obvious it was almost like if people know the movie dunkirk yep great movie yeah christopher nolan masterpiece these, these boats like trying to get people from the shoreline. It looked like all of these boats, private boats and private small ones and big ferry lines, they were all taking people over to New Jersey, which was really incredible. I'm not sure if that story was ever really told, but again, it wasn't wartime per se, but it was really cool that it w- there was no kind of like, oh, we're going to charge you or, oh, I'm not in the mood or no, we're not going to do that because it's not official or something. Everyone was saying, we are going to help you. So, and, and to clarify, Chuck, uh, like Dunkirk, which Dunkirk, Dunkirk was, uh, it's a tremendous story. And I love that Christopher Nolan, who's one of my favorite uh, cinematic storytellers, directors and writers and so forth, how he was, you know, told that story in such a creative way in seconds, minutes and hours with three different stories intertwined. And that's kind of a theme, it seems like with us, when we talk about seconds, minutes and hours here as well, that was very instrumental in World War II in the earlier days for the British. And in many ways, if Dunkirk didn't happen, the war might have gone a different way, quite frankly, because thousands upon thousands of soldiers were saved to, to fight another day uh, by, by many civilian boats, by hundreds of civilian boats, I believe. In your civilian modern day Dunkirk there on September 11th, my understanding is that it wasn't just, you know, there were certainly commercial passenger ferries that operate every day out of New York City, but there were, these were civilian boats as well, right? There, there were like all kinds of boats, right? As wow. That I recall, they were, anyone that had a boat along that shoreline, all the way, I think, down to downtown, were ferrying people away from Manhattan. Right, um, away from I the target. Saw my, right. my chunk, which my chunk, again, is like 10 blocks north-south blocks where, again, starting at the Intrepid and going all the way through the Manhattan Cruise Terminal, which is right. a terminal. Oh, yeah. Boats. And a lot of those are kind of for pay boats and for special occasion boats and taxi boats, all different types of boats. But I just remember this huge queue and we were being processed through. It was really incredible. And I was still a little bit in a haze because I, I think back at that time and I was still really in this like overprepared, just like high stakes, like what's going to happen next, right? Because I was right. still a little bit in shock, like I can't believe this is happening in New York City of all places. Right. In the United States. Yeah. Yeah. This context, because when I was in the reserves and I was, you know, still going to college and I was training at Fort Carson in Colorado Springs near NORAD. Right. And we'd go do training there. And we were during the first Gulf War, my unit was activated to go overseas for that first Gulf War. Right. An invasion of Kuwait way back. Oh, yeah. We were one of the only infantry units 
that were prepared enough at the time, reserve infantry units that were deployed overseas as almost like a second round of attack that they sent all the active duty over there first. Right. How things went, we ended up going to to Germany. And I, I recall being there and we were kind of part of a, they, it was fancy at the time, like, oh, what, anti-terrorist reaction force. But most of the time when we weren't training for some terrorist action, because back then, if you remember, they were afraid that, there was going to be this huge consequence where all these terrorists from Osama bin Laden and everything were going to go to Europe and start causing all, have all these bombs and car bombs and everything else. I remember having- Well, something's happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember, you know, on some of the U.S. Army bases, people that are already deployed overseas, we were there checking for car bombs for people coming into these areas where they had barracks and families lived. And I remember checking with the mirrors underneath that you've seen on TV. Yep. Yeah, you know, yep. You know, I was kind of a grunt, you know, at the time, and I was still a college kid looking underneath stuff and like, where am I in the world? What am I doing? Flying around in helicopters, just as practicing training for, you know, we had to be deployed because something was attacked in Europe and we were one of those people around to actually do that job. And and I'm sitting there uh, right there on the pier in, in Manhattan and looking over at New Jersey, thinking there's actual terrorists that are attacking, not somewhere in the Middle East, not somewhere even in Europe, where we were, uh, we were afraid that for people in Europe to be attacked by terrorists, but in New York City. And so I still had all this these thoughts and emotions going on in my head. What am I going through as I'm sitting there waiting in line, this really calm and collected line queue waiting to get on a boat and hearing that, oh yeah, the first tower fell. What do you mean the twin tower? 110, that doesn't make sense to me. Right, indestructible, right. And before we knew it, we were on a, a big, huge ferry boat and heading over, getting word now and seeing extra smoke downtown. Because once you're actually on the river there, and the you Hudson, start right? Angles downtown, right? Where it curves and, around, right? And now you're trying to like look for the towers because of that's course, like an oriented spot. When we, I, you know, I lived in there for seven years, and it's right. like. It's like seeing, like when you're in Denver, Colorado, you always know where the mountains are. Right. You know where that is. And it kind of- It's an orientation. Yeah. point of orientation. It's like something that'll never change. And that's the way New Yorkers, and even being there for only seven years or less at that point, you're looking down there and like something's missing. It just, it's hard to reconcile at that point. Cause I'm assuming what, by the time we got on the, the boat, it already been about nine, 1030. And I think it was 1028 when that the North Tower fell. Yes, the second tower fell at, it fell at 1028. Yeah. Right. Seeing that. And at this point, and I have to mention this, there was a start, you started having this smell mm. where you're starting to smell smoke and you're starting to smell some other smell that was very sour, kind of bitter. And that was that is like a electrical burning smell where you started having that smell. Because again, we're not so far away at this point, we're probably no more than four miles away. Right. Um, at a, as a crow flies, you're getting this whole sense that, oh, there's fire and it's a unique fire smell, not like burning wood. Right. 
like something else is burning and you have to start thinking at this point, which I'm talking to other people after the fact, you know, whether you accept or not, you're smelling, not to, to be grotesque, but you're smelling what's happened there. Right. Which includes the burn burning bodies. Yeah. Not that that's yeah. part of that. Yeah. You're not no, yeah. differentiating that by any means. Right. Right. That. Right. But, but it's part know of it. Yeah. For a fact that that's happened. Right. At that right. point, you have to also remember when you think about the Twin Towers, and if you were going to guesstimate, like how many people were in those towers, right? And you're thinking, how many people have just died during this time period? When I've been walking from from Midtown at Rockville Plaza over to the the pier, I've got on the boat and I'm heading over to New Jersey to Weehawken, New Jersey. How many people have died? And that 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 close to me, right? That close to where I'm at, right? Yeah was something I wasn't mentally prepared to deal with at that time, but I was thinking, trying to reconcile them not being there and now really thinking, because you want to be positive and I'm a really positive guy. And I always think about the most positive outcome in all situations. Me too. Yeah. The the silver lining and anything in all things, just being realistic thinking if those towers fell, how many people lost their lives? And at that time, no one thought it was only going to be a few thousand people. No one. Oh, yeah, I didn't. Yeah. Oh, That's yeah. only going to be a few thousand. We were thinking it was in the magnitude of tens of thousands of people, right? Just because yeah. you overthink, yeah. you're just thinking how many people work in that building? Because you're thinking of like floors, are those kind of like blocks? Like how many blocks of people are in the, and you're not thinking like, oh, it's still early and maybe it's not late and maybe people escaped and maybe people got out there in time. You're kind of, you can't help yourself but thinking that so many people have just died, right? Right, right. Now, Chuck, if I could just share some context to kind of give some numbers to what you're saying. Each of those towers was 110 stories tall. They, they were twin towers. They were the same height. Each of them, they, they were primarily offices. There was also the Windows on the World restaurant at the very top of one of the towers, but they were primarily offices, you know, 99% offices. Each tower had the capacity to hold 50,000 workers. And these towers were largely 100% leased out. This is primo real estate. These were as big as these buildings were, they were fully utilized at this point in time for and for, for the majority of their lifespan of, of uh, nearly 30 years. So 50,000 workers each. Uh, in addition, again, the windows in the world, the observation decks, about 200,000 people visited these towers every day. I mean, this just huge numbers of people were going in. And I'm, these are not just people going to the observation decks. These are people that don't work there. They're coming in out of those buildings, couriers, people delivering food. I mean, there's a lot of back and forth and whatnot. Each of these buildings the material to construct them, the concrete, the steel, the asbestos, which I believe was also, and that's a big part of the problem with the people uh, in the rescue efforts and people near there that were running away from there and, and things they inhaled and cancer and so forth that, that occurred afterwards. 500,000 tons of material for each tower, 1 million tons of steel concrete, asbestos, and other materials. And again, 100,000 workers total between the two towers and hundreds of thousands of visitors. I mean, the scale of this. So yeah, and I knew that. Again, New Jersey, I'm from New Jersey. New York City was my home city. My home city was attacked that day. And I knew those towers. I'd 
been in those towers, been near those towers. And I knew those towers held tens of thousands of workers. I was figuring myself about 40,000, 50,000 people, about half of the total capacity of the two towers. So one full tower total people died that day. We got so lucky. And one of the reasons we got so lucky is because of how the terrorists conducted the attack. They had to take the first flights out because they were trying to, you know, get in there when not a lot of people were around and, and, and get on these flights that first of the morning flights, which weren't as full. So they wouldn't have as many people to deal with, to get into the cockpits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They were very quote unquote smart, insidiously so uh, in that. But, you know, but by taking those first flights, they hit those towers pretty early on in the morning before they, they were full. And so obviously, once they were hit, people that would normally get go in there, getting there at nine in the morning, 930 in the morning, they're like, I'm out of here. I'm turning around. I'm going back home. I'm getting off the island like you were doing. So we were we were collectively very lucky in that regard. Now, now, Chuck, one thing is I want to understand. So you didn't, even though you have this better vantage point at, you know, roughly 1030, what was it, 1029 or so when the second or 1028 when the second tower fell, you didn't actually see it fall, but you just saw that smoke again, that different kind yeah. of smoke, right? Yeah. And that's, this is where er- everything's kind of like in a haze for me. Right. And, and I haven't been able to talk to some of the people that I was there with that day because Michael lives in Ireland and Kit's still in New Jersey, but we're a little bit out of touch right now because uh, I have recall, I ha- I do recall sometimes that I kind of see in my head the tower falling, but I'm not I, sure if I just made it up. Like, I don't know, but I, I knew for a fact that when it did fall, I knew it fall, that it fell. Right. Because um, just the way the smoke was oriented, the people that were on the ferry, there was only really one way people were looking on that. Boat. Right. Of course. It was in the area of downtown because as you start heading over there, you have this amazing view of all of Manhattan from that vantage point. When Because you're that far north when you're in that 50s and you're heading over to Weehawken. You right. have this amazing view that you can see all of Midtown going down to all the way downtown. And so it's an amazing view. And I've been across the, that area multiple times going into different parts of, of Hoboken and, and obviously Jersey City. But same, during that, same. everyone was kind of in that somber moment because it's almost like we felt like we escaped the island, literally feeling like we escaped the island. And everyone was like, didn't want to jinx anything by even really talking to each other. It was like- Right, something. in that and, moment. And so I, I don't recall, again, it's 20 years ago and, it, and it's just a blur. And sometimes it's hard to process it correctly because your mind just fills in crazy blanks sometimes when you don't want to adjust to the emotional part of it but it just i always go back to the, my main thought is just trying to reconcile the loss of life at that magnitude so close to you i was not that was one thing i wasn't really prepared for you know what i mean this like i'd imagine like in the military that i'd be i could worst case maybe i got in a gun battle or something like that and right now me were dying a little bit, which I kind of like imagined and tried to prepare for a little bit, you know, and you just kind of imagine yourself in scenarios like that, but you never imagine yourself in a scenario where you're just thinking so close to you, all these people's souls kind of like, boom, their lives are gone. And and I was thinking, I was literally thinking it tens of thousands, like this could be yep. like 50,000 people. Same. Yeah. Like right? I said earlier. And, and, yeah. And, and, and not being an engineer, not thinking, it's like, how are those buildings falling? You right. know? 
and they right. fall in sideways. So those are huge. How many blocks? Are, right. I wasn't imagining them pancaking. Right. I was like imagining like the worst case, like how is that? How are they falling? Right. You know, like which direction are they falling? And how much of downtown is going to be destroyed? It's all right. going in real time. And I'm trying to like prepare myself for like, is it ever, ever, ever going to be the same? Like, is yeah, it yeah. Because I, I had no, we, we didn't see anything. It's not like we we're watching live video anymore. We were all just like shell-shocked. It was the, really the first time I was really more shell-shocked than anything is like, how could this happen? No way could these things be gone. It's impossible. Right. No, what do you mean they fell, that they're down, right? And so it's like I had a chance to breathe, but at the same time, you know, on the boat, because I, I felt like we accomplished something and we still weren't home. And I, and I felt we escaped maybe potential chaos. And I was just wondering what was going on down there at the time? How crazy was it going on? And like, what's happening next in the world? Like, what other stuff do we do we just don't know what's going on. Like we're there are other targets that are being hit other places. Yes. Cause you know, at that point we, we didn't know about the other plane. Right. Cause you and, weren't watching the news at that point. No, you you no, weren't we, away. Yeah. We, yeah. In the dark. Yeah. At that point. Blackout. Other right. than, getting phone calls. We really didn't have a clue. And so, so anyway, you know, I just knew life had changed in a significant way. There was so much unknown. At some point as we were crossing the the river there, you know, I was thinking, well, I got to start thinking what next, what we're going to do next is everyone's like listening to my direction at this point. Right. Um, if I could, I, if I could interject real quick here, Chuck, before you, so, but yeah, cause I want to kind of, kind of touch upon, I want to lose kind of some of the some good things you mentioned here, and then we'll continue with the next steps here. One of the things you mentioned, and I never thought about this because for me, like most Americans that day, you know, we're, we're not in New York City. 1.5 million people living there, that's still, that is not the majority of, of American citizens. I was watching it on TV. I was across the country, you know, 2,700 or so miles away. But I can think of, in, in relation to what you're saying, sadly, car accidents are very common and sometimes they're oftentimes are fatal. Sometimes they're fatal. So when I've passed a car accident, and sometimes you can know when it's really bad, you see the ambulances, you see people on stretchers, you see blood. And when I passed a car accident and I see, you know, maybe a more serious one or multiple cars, and it looks like someone may have died or really badly injured, it's a somber moment. And it's like, oh my God, someone died. But I have never been in a scenario like you where you're right there, just a few miles away and you're smelling you know, all like we talked about how somber and how, I mean, whether you believe or not in souls and, and all that kind of thing, that's another, that's a whole other conversation we're not going to have today, but just the, again, that, that, that the immensity of the moment that that's a very interesting perspective. And I can, I can't even begin to imagine what it would have been like, like you were experiencing there. So I understand. Yeah. You know, even after 20 years, I get emotional. Just, just thinking that loss of life. And, but I'm saying to give people perspective again, I think that was a good one with the car accident. When you drive by the car and you see like someone's injured and you find out maybe that someone had died. Right. And it re you, you react a certain way. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just right. got close to it. Even if you have a, a family member and they die near you, that's really emotional because you're just, you're imagining something spiritual, even if you don't believe in a God or anything else like that, you just, you know, there's loss and you know, that it's just the magnitude that of suffering, just the, the life and then everyone else around that suffering. 
uh, is just how immense it is to know it's so close to you, like you can touch it. You know, and that's why I started with the smell. You can, you just, the smell just becomes like imprinted into your like psyche. Anytime right. any kind of a smoke that there's some burn to it, where there's something electrical or something different than wood, it, it just triggers that. Cause, and the thing it you know, later is like that smell was there for weeks because of the simmering, wow. simmeringness of it. You could smell it all the way down to down into the Jersey shore, that just pugnant smell of burning. Everyone just, it was hard to talk about, but you're just like knowing that they're rescuing people and it's all part of that. It like was like permanently like in you. You know what I mean? It was part of you. I'm saying that suffering was in you. It, you couldn't escape it. Right. And no matter, even if you weren't there that day, people in New Jersey there and people like that had to commute in there, had to go there. The people that definitely went there and had to smell it like firsthand. It's just that it was, it, it, it was crazy. And the only thing, and it's not to get too far off, but you know, like it, sometimes, you know, family members, they, they get ashes and they throw in the air and it just kind of floats there. And it just kind of becomes part of everything and everyone. Right. Scattering it's, ashes. It, right. You know, and there is some catharsis to that. Right. And this felt like the opposite of that. The mm. worst that, that was like, you weren't just honoring something. You're like, it just felt so different. And so it's so wrong. It's so wrong. It right. It felt really, really wrong. You know, right. it felt so like on the opposite of so hurtful. Right. You know, right. it's hard, it's hard to escape. And then sorry to kind of go into so much crap. That's okay. Detail, I mean, there's so much here. That's, yeah. That that's, Beyond the the fear element and all the other stuff that was going on, you're just consumed by that. And you just felt like, you know, and, and a good word to use maybe is like violated. Right. Like, yes. You weren't part yes. of this, but I'm seeing it just the the violation of humanity. It's just and, and I think that's what just knowing that all these people were innocent people or heroes. Yes. These yes. people that were like fighting and, and it gives, you know, after the fact, it gives you beyond getting into some of the fear and dealing with fear. It gives you this element of empathy in some ways where you're thinking, why would I want to inflict that on anyone? Right. And that's just me personally. Like, why would I want to like react in such a hateful way that will cause something like this to go in the craziest way to create hate? And because that's what it kind of just this hate just magnified a hundred thousand fold to create this situation of, you know, and so anyway, and that's that was confronted with that on that boat ride. Front and center, right in front of you. Yeah. You could not avoid it because it was un it was unavoidable it just would just like floored you and you could just see it in people that yeah yeah i mean and, and i do want to touch upon that although that's not necessarily related to the fear aspect and then i do want to come back to the fear aspect with a question about the boat related to the boats but i mean to your point there are various things that a person a human being could do there's great things good things the person can do you know the heroes of that day we talked about that earlier those are great things that people can do in the in the triumphing over adversity a tremendous bravery there are also very bad things that human beings can do, you know, sexual assault, a murder of a person, or even a serial killer killing or mass shooter. And, and, you know, one of the worst mass shootings, for example, is Las Vegas back in what was it, 2017? I believe 2016, 2017, where uh, over 100 people were, were shot. And, but even that, as bad as that is, 
a group of people, you know, there are 19 hijackers of these uh, multiple airplanes and the number of support people, if you will, all led by Osama bin Laden and uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and, and the other lieutenants, so to speak, within the Al-Qaeda. For people to attempt to kill, and they didn't know how many people they were going to kill. They, they knew the capacity of these towers. I'm sure they studied, you know, oh, World Trade Center, how tall they are, how many people could be in them, et cetera, and the, and the Pentagon. And, and uh, Flight 93, apparently, when Khalid Sheikh Mohammed when he was interviewed later, uh, apparently Flight 93, the one that Todd Beamer and all those brave souls on that plane crashing in Pennsylvania, it was intended to go to the, to the Capitol building. You can imagine all the senators and representatives and staff and civilians visiting that, that building it could have been killed as well. Um, all these targets trying to kill thousands upon thousands, not soldiers, okay? And, and forget about the Capitol in, in the World Trade Center. Civilians, these are not even politicians. These are men, women, and children in daycare and, and, and school kids visiting and so forth. You know, When you look at something like that, thousands upon thousands of people, this goes beyond a gray area. This is not, oh, is it justified or not? I'm sorry, as a human being, the acts committed that day, there is no justification for what those 19 hijackers and everyone else in Al-Qaeda that supported that operation. And, you know, I might use superlatives here that some people may, may be uh, uncomfortable with. I'm sorry. The acts committed that day more than perhaps any other acts or most other acts committed by, by human beings in the thousands of years of our history, the acts committed on September 11th are amongst the most evil acts that can be committed by a human being. And Chuck, I, as much as I was impacted that day, because I am from that area of the country, you, regardless of where you're from and whatnot, you were there. I mean, it's one thing to watch it on TV and have a personal connection, but you were there and the emotion and again, watching, seeing all those souls dying because, you know, not many of them got, were killed instantly when the planes hit, but many more were, were killed and, and the firefighters, you know, bravely going into the buildings when these towers collapsed. I mean, the intensity of it and to, to witness the result of that evil is unprecedented. And I can, I can understand how, how it impacts you. But going back to the fear aspects and facing fear, I wanted to ask you something. So these boats, so I know that these are ferries. Some of them you run a ferry, but they're also civilian boats and private boats and whatnot. Were they just in New York and they went over to New Jersey and they and they dropped off the people and the people running those boats, they're getting out of New York too and they're getting away? Or they were they going back and forth? They were going back and forth. Wow. I, it's the culture there in the, the Northeast. Not that we don't have amazing, brave cultures all throughout our U.S. states. But these guys were hardcore. You know, some of these guys are just like, we're going to help. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to do my part, right? You could see so many people just rising to the occasion and saying, I'm going to do whatever I can do to help. And, wow. and I'm saying that the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, these people, they're not going to back down ever, right? Not, not that they're necessarily better than anyone else, but I'm saying the, these guys are, are hardcore and were to happen anywhere for better, or for worse, I think is because of a lot of people and a lot of people in those buildings reacting the right way that it wasn't significantly worse. Right. And they're just the resolve. It's just, I'm really proud of the way we reacted that day. The people around that area reacted. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, as am I. Yeah. Know, it wasn't like people were just like running for their lives, you know, where we were. I was very concerned because I just didn't know. Right. How, 
would react. And again, we were still good three to four miles away. We weren't down there in the thick of it, but just looking after the fact and looking at news coverage and everything else, very few people panic percent wise. I, I personally, I know there were scenarios where people may have done that and people were justified in being that way, but how orderly things were playing out, at least where I was and the things that I saw, people were there helping. They were mostly calm and they were trying to figure out ways to help people. They weren't just running for their lives, as you would imagine in some Hollywood movie, breaking and pillaging or whatever else, taking advantage of people. It just all, it just, they, they weren't charging money. They weren't doing it. It's like, let me help you get to safety. And that was kind of the theme of that day for everyone who was outside that zone um, downtown is people were helping each other. Right. No, absolutely. And yeah, the res- like you said, the resiliency of, of New Yorkers and whatnot, because, you know, New York has been attacked and, you know, there's been, a, you know, it's a big city and things happen. And a lot of things have blackouts and, you know, it's not like it's a suburb with only a, f- a few hundred people. It's a lot of people have been impacted over the years. There's a resiliency to the people there. I, I, I agree. I get them from there. I relate. But, you know, to your point, you know, there was so many stories and documentaries of both, you know, first responders, firefighters, police, but also just people like, you know, you and me, just civilians that were there running up into those buildings and trying to save people. So many heroes that day. And, you know, on the one hand, you talked about in people in these situations, they could panic and whatnot. You, I've seen this again and again in, in, in human history. When war is one thing, that's a whole other story. But but in terms of natural disasters or, or like a large-scale terrorist attack like this, you see when, when times are at their worst, oftentimes people are at their best. And I saw that myself 3,000 miles away in San Diego. I was part of, what, thousands of people forming one of the largest U.S. human flags ever to, to commemorate after September 11th, the level of patriotism, how kind people were to each other in the days and weeks and months that followed. We as a country, we had never been united like that in recent modern history. Now, again, going back to before you and I were born back into the World War II days and, and perhaps, you know, whatnot back then, another story, perhaps the Cold War, perhaps maybe, but, but certainly in the, in the past several decades, I have never seen this country united as one and not sadly since then. And perhaps there's something we could learn from that, but that's maybe a little bit beyond the scope of, of this. But, you know, I do want to just quickly touch upon the answer, your answer to my latest question. So those boats, some, you know, a lot of civilian boats, even these ferries, you know, quite frankly, these ferry boats, you know, their first transfer of people from those New York ports, piers over to New Jersey, those ferry operators, they had every right to walk off the job right then and there for their own safety. All all rules are off on a day like today. New York City, the entire city, effectively speaking, was attacked that day. And no, but they didn't do it. They stayed on the job. But even these civilian, this is just like Dunkirk, again, rising to the occasion in a, in a moment like that in the 1940s. And, you know, again, more heroes. I mean, this, this story is the story of, of despair, of, of tragedy, of people killing thousands upon thousands of people. But again, it's a story of heroes. It's a story of people triumphing over adversity. And, and, and there's some positives here. So, but going back to your story of this day. So 
you're now kind of a little bit of the somber moment with what you've just witnessed now knowing the towers have both collapsed, but also this sigh of relief for your personal situation, getting your brother-in-law, his coworker, your friend and coworker, you guys are together and you're like, okay, looks like we're getting out of here. looks like we're going to be out where we're, you know, I'm, I've been facing and telling myself we're going to be okay. And yeah, we're going to be okay. It looks like more and more. So what's happening next? What is your next step here? Well, before we get over there, I know it's going to be a challenge. You can imagine trying to get a taxi or get some, some kind of ride. Right. Because I live down in Middletown, New Jersey, down the the parkway and quite a bit of ways away. And so I was like, well, how are we going to do this? I don't, we could be waiting in line for seven hours or something. Cause I can imagine a lot of people on that side may have been like, I'm going home. I'm not working today. Um, right. And so it, it was a pretty crowded area when we got there. And so our plan was to walk away from that kind of station area, the pier area there, um, and to get away from the mass and see if we could maybe hail a, a taxi or a, uh, a livery service, kind of like a kind of a limo service, but with a normal sedan. It's not a right. Ride. They're called right. livery services there. Yes. And we got really lucky. We probably walked a half mile or so and we were able to flag some down and more or less kind of say we'll pay double but want to go down to towards the new jersey new jersey shore down in middletown that's where you lived right yeah and we all jumped in and squeezed in kit the biggest of us all he's i think he sat in front he let him sit in front and then the three of us kind of squeezed in the back a sigh of relief once he got on the highway It, it was like no traffic yeah there was no traffic on the highway and we we got home probably about 45 minutes. Wow. And because we're well, it's about 50 miles away uh, from there, kind of 114 off the parkway. Mm, and, okay. Uh, you know where Milltown is there. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, Central you know, New Jersey for our audience. Yeah. And so dropped off my friend and and then we, the three of us went to, to my house. We got in the house and my wife was already there. This obviously is pre-Chase. My son. Right before Chase. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe what just had happened. I sat down. I, I want to be strong, but I felt emotional because I didn't want to set Michelle off and her brother was safe and his colleague was safe. And I was like, how this, how are we here? It was right. like un- unbelievable because again, we were back home I, I, by 12 o'clock, right? I think we were home by 12. Wow. And so around that time frame, and just think of what happened between eight, 30 or so, right? And starting right. starting the day, like a beautiful day in Midtown, New York at one of the coolest locations, having breakfast with the view of like the ice skating rink there behind us with that, that beautiful scenery there. Yeah. And just to have the world be completely different in just a few hours the right. life, life as we knew it completely and at that point we had no clue was going to going to happen right uh, and i didn't know until we really got home to understand like how the towers 
fell because they were just covering all that and re-showing. They had, by then, all the footage of the planes hitting and at point of impact. They had everything, the perfect camera views of the towers falling from all the different angles. Oh, yeah. And I just, I, I still had kind of the smell of smoke in my nostrils. And I'm just just replaying views from the, the boat in my head and trying to reconcile. But I was kind of, you know, at that point, I was allowing myself to kind of just to try to digest everything at that point. I just, I just, it was unbelievable. I still couldn't believe I was still having a hard time really internalizing what had just happened and what we just left. Right. Because right. we were like, in this really nice neighborhood in New Jersey, you know, and it's like, what's going on? And it's like a movie. It's like living in, in a, in a movie, like just experience. Right. It just didn't feel like real at all. Yeah. I mean, like I said earlier, this is like Dean Devlin, and Roland Emmer- Emmerich, who are like masters of disaster cinema. Again, I mentioned a couple of movies earlier. They also did 2012 and, you know, there's been others and, and, you know, it's almost like they could have done this movie. I remember seeing the initial, when I woke up that morning uh, in California, it was around 7 a.m. my time, around 10 a.m. in East Coast time, turning on the TV to watch the news. And the South Tower had already collapsed and the North Tower was on fire. And I remember very quickly to myself, because I'm very someone that very much follows what's going on in the world, wants to know what's going on in the world because we are one planet and what happens thousands of miles away can impact us. And we're all, you know, geopolitical, what globalization and whatnot, becoming smaller and more connected. And I pretty quickly without, you know, besides what, what might have been, they might have been saying in the newscast, realized, oh, wow, we've been attacked. Because again, both towers having been impacted. One had fallen and one on fire. And then I wound up going to work that day. I was in a cloud the whole day driving to work. We were, you know, people were expect to work. This Nothing happened in San Diego. Got off of work and then went over to a friend's house and just watching the new, watching the TV for hours. And, you know, nothing else happened that day besides what we've already talked about. Three buildings that were attacked. The one plane that was heroically crashed, saving countless lives in the Pennsylvania field, United 93. But there was never that moment throughout the rest of the day of, oh, wow, thank God nothing else happened. Because what did happen was of such a high magnitude. There was there was no room for thought of, oh, thankfully nothing else happened. It was I was so consumed with what did happen. And not just that day, but in the days and weeks to follow. Again, this is just unprecedented. So Chuck, you know, you got back home, but you still worked in New York City, you know, working at, at 10 Rockefeller Center there. So when did you next go back into New York City? After the weekend was over, the decision from the company was that we were going to go back. So about a week later. Yeah, I forget what day of the week it was. Do you remember what day of the week it was? Well, so September 11th occurred on on a Tuesday. Yeah, so we didn't work Wednesday, Thursday, Friday in the office. Right. But then we got back the, the office on that Monday. So not everyone, did, not everyone came back. A lot so, of that, a lot of people could not go back like, to New York I'll City get for a long job time. In yeah, I'm not, again, right. People thought, "Is this stage one?" Right. What else is going to happen? We're vulnerable. Exactly. And it wasn't obvious how you were going to get in the city and how you would get around. So for a while, it was a question of how do you get to the city. At the time, I had to take a ferry. I, if I recall correctly, I had to take a ferry from New Jersey to get back over there. So you drove down to like Hoboken or Weehawken and then took a ferry over? Yeah, into kind of, well, from I think I was Hoboken to somewhere near Midtown, kind of near where I think we were before, but maybe in the right. 30s. I think it was more in the 30s or on those periods. So more downtown, right. Yeah, I don't really recall exactly when I was able to start taking the train again. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't immediate. It was obvious that from that point on that there was a huge security presence in all the sub 
subways and all the transitions and up and below it was obvious it wasn't hidden and you try to compartmentalize and you just kind of move on but people were anxious at that point because again we were working and trying to do our jobs while knowing that everything that was going on downtown was also going on. Yeah, recovery efforts and oh yeah. Now that first day, that Monday, which would have been Monday, the September 17th, a week later that you went back in for the first time, were you nervous? Were you had, did you have any fear going on? Oh my gosh, I'm going back to this target. My only assessment was that we're aware, kind of like post Pearl Harbor, our readiness changed significantly. Uh, Yeah, agreed. And that's how I looked at things too. Yeah. I'm seeing knowing a little bit about the military and everything else, the the way planes were being boarded when they eventually started flying again, the level of oversight, everyone was in like readiness mode times 10. I just felt like the only thing I could do is just move forward and, and, and try to put a positive spin and keep the people that I was responsible for to keep moving forward. Yeah. They, we've got, because if you remember back then, a lot of people were saying we can't let them win by changing what we do in a daily right basis. i totally agree with that 100 a big a big thing from the president down everyone you're especially new yorkers and everyone in that region is like we're gonna get them back obviously someone's on that job but we're not gonna let them make us afraid and fearful not go back to work do what we're doing because we can't hole up in our houses the whole time some people i think did that but uh, most people said we're going back we're just gonna assume the best and move on. If we survive that day, we can survive anything. Yeah, absolutely. I'm totally with you on that. And that was part of that, that people rising to the occasion I spoke of earlier, Well, it was just the bravery, all the, the thousands of people from all over the country, all over the world, not just firemen, civilians. I had friends in San Diego. They went to New York City to help with the rescue efforts, recovery efforts. And again, some people were recovered in the, in the first few days, at least alive, not many, uh, sadly, and, and just all you know, the cleanup efforts, et cetera. Uh, but in addition to that, people rise in the occasion of, we are not going to let them win. Like you said, we are going to continue to live our lives and, and you know, pursue freedom and, and try to make the world a better place, and democracy and freedom and, and so forth and all that. And to your point, also, you weren't very concerned about going back in New York City a week later because you knew that readiness and much like the term that was used after Pearl Harbor was the, a sleeping giant has been awakened. And that certainly you could apply that as well after September 11th. In the 20 years since, there have been terrorist attacks. In particular, for example, one of the biggest ones was in London in July 7th, 2005. The train, the coordinated train attacks, train station underground attacks and so forth. Very tragic. But here in the U.S., uh, there have been mass shooting events. And I personally, you know, again, we all can give our opinions, whether it be the Pulse attacks in 2016 or Las Vegas. Those are, I consider those terrorist attacks. Uh, and when, when people try to attack on a large scale and try to kill people and do kill people or, or whatnot, that is an act of terrorism, trying to kill innocent people. This is not war. Soldiers, okay, attack other soldiers. That's honored by the Geneva Convention. That's part of war. It's an unfortunate reality. We're kind of a violent species. We're the most violent animal on this planet, <laughs> a species of animal. But in terms of attacking civilians, I'm sorry, no, that is completely wrong. That is the most amoral thing that can be done. And thank thank God, you know, various things have been done in this country politically and whatnot, even everyday citizens being vigilant, that we've not 
had another attack here in the not in the U.S. Not to see it, it would never happen again. There have been attempts. There have been foiled attempts. And we used to again our, our alertness scale that we had. You know, a, a green, yellow, orange, and, and all that. Red. Thank God we haven't had any other major incidents. You know, we, uh, planes started flying again. What was it? I think late September, a few weeks later. I lived in San Diego. I was on an airplane about five weeks after September 11th. Ironically, came here to Florida to go to the parks, to go down to Key West and have a vacation. And I was not going to give in to the fear. And I'm like, I'm going to live my life. I'm not going to be afraid to fly. And I've never been afraid to fly since. So I'm glad to see that you similarly had an approach of we are, we've got this. We are a strong nation united and we are, we are vigilant now and we, we are, you know, not going to let this happen. So you went back to New York City. Question I want to ask you, Chuck, in the wake of all of this, was September 11th the scariest day of your life? And if not, what was and why? It's one of the most emotionally disturbing days of my life. I didn't necessarily feel afraid for my life, my personal safety, like somehow I was close to death. Sometimes other scenarios where I was really fearful that I could actually die. And there's a few that I had, obviously in boot camp, you're dealing with live ammunition, like going through, I think I told you, hand grenade training and looking at pockmarks and, you know, some of the cement barriers and knowing some of the people I was training with and how their lack of discipline in certain things. And definitely, you know, on the firing ranges, when you were going in your lane or your channels, when people are firing live ammo, definitely firing 81 millimeter mortars, like next to your head, because literally that's where they are. And those things have like 50 meter killing radiuses. Right. Dealing with those misfires after the fact and other pat next training when you're dealing with like white phosphorus rounds and even checking like for car bombs when I was stationed in Germany for a little while during that first Gulf War, it was over quick. Those, those were like serious moments where I was like, anything could happen if I, I had to be prepared for like really crazy stuff that literally could kill me. But I think the scariest one, even beyond that, the scariest day, which a lot of people forget, I think it was October 12th, that same year where anthrax was going around. It was going to certain news media personalities. And one of the areas it went to, one person it went to was Brokaw. And we worked on the third floor and his office was also on the third floor, right across the street. So you could easily just look into his office like 90% the time. At any point in time, you could see him in there working or people in there. There's one like, okay, great. That's not just working in New York City. Some of the things that you see is kind of crazy. Like the people you see going to Today Show. You know, that day, as that the news was breaking, Anthrax was in the mailroom and you could see, there's pictures of that. You could see even online at the time of people in hazmat suits down there on 48th Street, right there at Rockefeller Plaza with hazmat units going to, and you could see him in his office. And we knew that they were checking our mailroom and we all shared the same mailroom. Oh, wow. And you'd already heard of stories about people, they were quarantined mailrooms, post office areas, because it was really oh, yeah. post offices and there was even people that died if you remember and at that point i was like you've got to be kidding we're gonna potentially get poisoned by anthrax from our mailroom wait what this is not something you mess around with 
No. Not to be light of it at all, but it just, I was thinking that is chemical warfare. Here's things you could ever imagine because it's not something you see. It's not something you smell. It's just something that you inhale or touch that in in being trained in the military, you know, they're prepared for doing, you've got special equipment and you've got a special shot that you're always prepared that you always have with you that worst case scenario, you got to, you know, take the injection and it's the anecdote for most things. And even then you're still probably most likely going to die or be sick from the, the side effects. You just don't know. And you're prepared for all that. And that, that was where I was like, what is going on here in New York city? And how am I in the center of this at this point? That, that was crazy. And those other times are crazy too. Flying around helicopters and everything else hanging out, but, but it just, it completely different emotional situation, more one-on-one a fear of my own life, not just everything around me. Definitely the emotional impact of 9-11 is just still with me, just Same. the magnitude of it, just being so close to it and just dealing with the aftermath for many weeks thereafter, just kind of living the suffering that was going on at the time. The scariest where I, I just was afraid for my own life at uh, just being so close to things that could just kill me or I could die, kind of like jumping out of a plane a little bit without a lot of training. Like, I hope the parachute works. But yeah, that's Those are some of the things that, you know, I've had to. Yeah. Wow. That is incredible. After what you already had dealt with on September 11th, but there you're just a floor away in the same mail room. Yeah. And I remember, you know, seeing that on TV, I'm like, oh my God, how dare someone. And whoever didn't quit at that, whoever didn't quit at that time, there were some people that were on the fence. Right. Quit after that. Right. Right. Um, You know, and, and the people that came back those subsequent days, like, man, we we've got a different kind of badge now that we're wearing. Right. Um, Badge of courage. Yeah. You know, yeah. So what I was, yeah. So what I was starting to say is it's a very obvious what's going on there is, you know, here this this country is terrorized, literally has been terror attacked and is now terrorized again. And we were a lot of, you know, a lot of us, most of us, like you were saying, and I've been saying we rose to the occasion, but still we were on edge and, you know, what's what's phase two going to be and how dare whoever sent those letters, the anthrax letters, how dare they take advantage of that time period like that? That how that just awful again again it's it's an act of terrorism and anthrax really is is actually it's a biological agent it's bio, it's a bacteria you know here we are you now twenty years later in the past year dealt, dealing with a pandemic of a scale that we've not seen for a very long time thanks to modern medicine with COVID nineteen and you know whether or not COVID nineteen was released from a lab or purposely or you know that's not what we're discussed today but regardless of the source of how COVID nineteen got out there. The reality is that, it, it, you know, it spread across the world and and that created so much fear in the media and whatnot. And you and I, Chuck, we've talked about, talked about today, the same rules apply, the same advice applies, and certainly advice that I've followed myself. I, in dealing with the depression and anxiety that I've dealt with in my life and the panic attacks, I have learned and through, through therapy and, and reading and friends and family helping me through these tough times in my life. I've learned mindfulness techniques and how to, de- you know, deal with anxiety and minimize it, et cetera, et cetera, where I could use those techniques in the past year. The basically the approach I took is I'm not going to be afraid of COVID-19. I'm not going to let it destroy my life. I'm going to be sane and be in the moment 
and make wise decisions, wearing a mask, keep, keeping clear of people and in stores and in parks or wherever I'm at as much as possible, social distancing, but just not going into crowds, not going to spring breaks and not wearing a mask and things like that, just being smart. But I'm not staying at home and I didn't stay at home. And guess what? I didn't get COVID-19 and I got my vaccines as soon as possible. Well, and, and it's the same kind of approach and whatnot. And you know, to wrap things up here, Chuck, and again, I thank you so much for taking us through this emotionally very intense and most intense day of, of your life. And just an incredible story. Something that, you know, like it's like a movie can be made of it, like we've been talking about. Uh, do you have any final advice that you would have for our audience? God forbid they should find themselves in a in a truly fear-laden situation like this in the future. You know, I think some of it's, common sense to most people, but still just to, to put it out there. It's not like my advice is rock solid. It's not like it's based on perfect science or anything. So all the disclaimers out there as well. And cause I always think of my son, Chase, who's 15 going on 16 school shootings, these where you have an active shooter event. So you usually the way I communicate to, to Chase and other people that I sometimes talk about is if you hear noise sounds, significant sounds that sound like gunfire or firecrackers, or you hear smoke or you're in a, an immediate danger situation, especially if you think it could be a live shooter event. Again, kind of going back to some of the initial thing is that I mentioned before, you've got to as immediately as possible, avoid panic and give yourself a chance to not be hit if there's anything going on. And so a lot of people, they just immediately start running if they hear shots fired. Right. Anything like that, they just start running. That usually that's not the best approach. You should get down to the lowest possible position. Even if you're completely prone, if you can do that, great. If you can get behind anything you can, because you don't know even some people that are trained because of how things sound ricochets. You do not know where it's coming from. So you do not know if you're running into it or away from it. So you got to give yourself a chance to, again, use your brain. So you get down as fast as you can take a deep breath, kind of tell yourself, you know, you're going to be okay. Think, breathe, stay, stay calm for those seconds. And as quickly as possible, see if you can identify a better place. So you don't get trampled or whatever else, kind of like in the Las Vegas scenario, you've got to see if you can find cover, right? right? Cause you don't want to, you want to increase your chances every second you have, cause every second those scenarios mean something. And the more critical thinking you can apply in those moments by thinking, protect myself low. And then can I find cover second uh, to increase your next decision point? And a lot of people that during that Las Vegas event as well, or people in classes, they, they get under tables or go in a closet, whatever they're listening to their teachers, but you can't overreact. You can't, you've got to uh, get, again, give yourself a, a chance. And if you overact panic, start running again, it's just as likely you run in the wrong direction as run in the right direction. If you have someone who you can trust to tell you what to do, great. But even sometimes that's not accurate. So once again, these are seconds. Again, this is only if you hear noise and it seems like it's immediate to put yourself in a better situation, provide cover. And then once you're in a situation for provide cover, you really need to make sure that your next step is a good one, right? And that's where breathing, telling yourself you're going to be okay. Because the last thing you want to do, and what I'm always thinking is you don't want to make the situation worse for other people around you and first responders. Because 
because a lot of times the chaos can make it worse if you're adding to that. Sometimes, unless it's a fire situation or it's blatantly obvious that something's going on and there's no way around it. But if you do have a second to kind of evaluate your situation, again, normally at some point, the, the shots can stop, but if they're still going and you don't know where to go more times than not, it's better to kind of stay in, in a covered position than to do something that will make it worse for you and others. The kind of goal is do no harm to yourself and others. And if you don't really have a clear plan or a clear point of next step, uh, it's almost better to not you know, make a bad decision. And then hopefully over, you know, if you're at, you make that 15 second mark or 30 second mark, it becomes more obvious if you should stay or go and maybe what direction you should take. Because if, if you have the, the wherewithal to actually go away from the fire or be directed from someone that's obviously in a sense of authority to tell you where to go, great, do that. But more times than not, which I think is a great example of what can happen that just happened at Knott's Berry Farm. Looking, because you could see from social media video, people that were over by a roller coaster, just for people to know that there was a, a shooting incident outside of outside of Knott's Berry Farm, kind of a drive-by, who knows what it, who did or what and why. A shot or two were fired. And outside the park, the word got around very quickly inside the park that something was going on. And what you could see from the videos that on social media is you heard people saying things like this. There's an active shooter, run for your lives. Everyone was running where? To the exit. Where was the gunfire? At the exit, at the entrance of the park where that's around the same place as the exit to the park. And there were so many rumors flying within literally minutes of it happening. No one really knew what to do. And in that circumstance, my only recommendation would be is that you should take the a moment to, if there's not an immediate threat, assess your situation. And before you start running in either direction, you need to make sure you have a good source. You, ca you cannot just assume the worst and just hear information from people that are obviously panicked. There was kids right. panicked. There were adults that were panicked. Everyone without information was potentially sending people in the wrong direction. And again, this idea of do no harm you don't want to make it worse for someone else. So you've got to tell yourself, it's going to be okay. Let me assess my, my situation. What should I do? And then if you can find someone that potentially would know, like someone, a worker there or someone with a walkie talkie, someone where you would have a better idea what you should do next. Because otherwise you could just find cover and wait. Some people that were smart, some people went into buildings and waited out or into a bathroom or backstage and waited it out and waited for direction. And they got good information eventually and they were evacuated out safely. There was maybe a little panic inside, maybe a little shock inside, not knowing what was happening, but they were safe. They didn't run towards potentially a problem. They didn't add to the panic or the shock or, you know, the craziness and chaos of the situation. And they're good. And the last thing I wanted to say too, which is really important for families, you, you have to have best case meeting places on the best of scenarios where you get separated, you can meet somewhere. And then you have multiple layers of worst case meeting spots. So for instance, at a, at a amusement park, the, the best case could be somewhere at the Exeter entrance or some huge place in the front that everyone knows where you can meet. It's like, oh, if I can't meet you there, meet me at the front at this specific spot, this picture spot, or like in Knott's, there's a place up front you can meet there. Um, but in worst case scenarios, like where, where should I go if I get 
get lost, you're not there and, and you're not coming or something happened, well, you could maybe meet me at the car if you know where the car is. Um, if they're old enough children, if not, then you gotta say, you're just gonna be meet me there. But worst, worst case scenario, if for some reason you can't get to a car, you need to find another good location. And typically there's places outside the park that you could meet like at a gas station or a place where you go get gas or something like that. But families need to be prepared because one thing's that happened at Knott's and sometimes it happens at locations, people get separated. And at the Knott's Berry Farm incident, people were separated for multiple hours where they could not find their kids. They could not contact them mm. because they were, some people were picking up people in cars and driving them places because there was a lot of overreaction. And so there was a lot of parents that kind of created additional problems because they didn't have a plan where if there was something going to happen, what would you do? And some parents, you know, with the, the, the active shooter incidents at schools, they become very accustomed to using texting to communicate. You can't guarantee that's going to happen where you'll be able to con contact someone because usually in these scenarios, everyone's calling all at the same time, right. all the same cell tower. So you can't guarantee that. That's kind of one of the more better case scenarios where you can say, oh, I'm here, meet me there, right? But in the chaos, sometimes people just, they don't think and they're like, what do I do next? And they may not have access to social media or good information and they may be directed to the wrong spaces and get kind of disconnected from you know, the normal means of communication. Again, you know, you want to give yourself a chance and you'll have a better chance if you kind of use some of the best practices of tell yourself you're going to be okay, breathe, try to get yourself in a position where you can feel comfortable with some of your next steps. Again, there's a lot of science to this. You should listen to your parents, listen to people you respect, but if you can try to avoid panic and have fear kind of create these vicious cycles of, of anxiety and extra panic and shock where you just start running around kind of like some people end up doing, you can definitely make it worse for yourself and worse for others around you and definitely wor worse for first responders who are actually supposed to help you. That's my big picture take on that. It's far from tried and true, but you know, given my experiences and Everything that I think about, that's kind of how I, I look at it. Thank you, Chuck. And, uh, you know, kind of having that plan B. The last thing I'd like to say here, and thank you again, Chuck, for this amazing discussion, you know, very emotional, very intense, especially for yourself, but even for myself. Again, keeping in mind our younger listeners or even our older listeners that remember September 11th, but maybe you've never been to New York City or you've not been there recently. I've been to New York City, gosh, countless times since September 11th. Several times now, I've been down to Ground Zero, you know where the where the towers fell, where they where they were, and initially when they were pits, when they were still cleaning up, and and and, and over the years, and the past couple of times I've been down there is after everything was everything was complete, and basically the new world, One World Trade Center was built, the also known as the Freedom Tower, which is what I prefer to call it, given the symbology of it. But most importantly, what I'm getting at here to close close our special episode today is two things. One, there are two gigantic reflecting pools, uh, these huge uh, it, it waterfalls with basically concrete railings around them. And on those railings, you will see every single one of the victims that died that day on September 11th is listed. And you can look up online if you actually want to commemorate a victim who's someone who died someone that you know, a, a friend, a family member. I've gone there myself because of friends of, that I have that lost friends. And I've taken pictures and, and shown them this is, their, this is their 
they're memorialized. And again, they appreciate it, have some closure from that. And those two pools, the reflecting pools, are the footprint of the North and South Tower. And they're gigantic because those towers were gigantic, not just in height, but in length and width. You know, they were, they were big, big buildings. But don't make the mistake of just going to those reflecting pools because there is something much more important right next door. And that is the 9-11 Memorial Museum. Every American citizen needs to go to this museum. The, the one tagline that came in the days and weeks and months to follow after September 11th, it was on pins, it was on stickers, on bumper stickers, on signs, is never forget. We can never forget what happened on this day. And that is why we've done this special episode 20 years later here with Chuck today. Go to that museum. It will be one of the most intense experiences you'll have in your life. You need to experience it, whether you were alive that day, like Chuck and I were, but especially if you're one of our younger members of our audience, if you weren't alive that day, go down to that museum so you can truly appreciate what happened and so that we can hopefully never have this happen again. And, you know, in in terms of the decisions that you make and being vigilant Uh, Every American citizen can be vigilant to help protect, prevent these attacks from occurring. Always be situationally aware. If you see something suspicious, a suspicious person, a suspicious package, a luggage that's left somewhere in the airport, in the middle of the airport with no one nearby, suspicious, you know, anything, contact the authorities, police, security, anyone that, you know, you can, you'll, you'll, anywhere you're at, you'll find police nearby, security, et cetera. We can all do our part. But go to that museum so you can truly understand the magnitude of that day. And that, with that said, thank you so much, Chuck, for your time today. And I know this wasn't easy for you. And I appreciate you know, all the preparation before the interview today. And thank you so much for, for talking to us. You're welcome. One last thing I want to say is it's okay to be afraid. It's a, a, a human natural response. There are so many people afraid. There's always so many people afraid when they're exposed to these types of events. But you do have power to control certain things in these, these situations. And that's where you can help yourself and help people around you and come through it out the other side and, and be okay. Again, being brave doesn't mean you're not afraid. It's just you, you're able to take the best of yourself and, and kind of survive that fear and come out the other side better for it. And, you know, even though it's great to be socially aware and, and uh, you know, situationally aware of your surroundings and everything else, you don't have to be consumed with threats around you. And because and we want people to live their lives and find happiness and, you know, but you can be observant um, and prepared. Uh, and by being observant and prepared, then that gives you even that much more luxury to, you know, go on and, and find happiness in life. So that's how I kind of kind of look at it. And, and I'm inspired by all the other people and families that lost loved ones during that, uh, heroes, and how they're able also to find happiness in even the greatest of tragedies that any family could experience. Absolutely. That's, that's great. Great final words there. Thank you, Chuck. And again, thank you so much for your time. And you're our, our first guest to uh, be on more than one episode here of the Coaster Challenge podcast, hopefully not the last. And I'm sure this won't be the last time we talk to you as well here on the show. Thank you so much, Chuck. You always, always appreciate your insight and wisdom. Thank you. And, and I really appreciate your, your mission, your podcast mission and everything you do for, for all your listeners and people that you meet uh, at all the parks. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Chuck. Chuck, I have to tell you that is one of the most powerful, incredible stories. I 
was just completely blown away by your by your story today where where you were in New York. I will tell you that I would say you're a true hero for what you did and how you handled everybody around you that day. Well, I really want to take the time to thank you for sharing with us. And I think this is your, you said you were, this was your first time ever sharing this story on podcasts or even live radio. So thank you for sharing with that. I want to take this opportunity to give all of you out there tonight my final thoughts about 9-11. So please bear with me because this is something very important. I think everyone should listen. On September 11, 2001, it was a time in American history where we were in peaceful times. We were do- the economy was doing good. Uh, people were doing very well. It was a good, you know, it was even before that day, even on that day, it was a perfect day. But unfortunately, that day with, within an hour turned in such tragic that it sent a shockwave, not just to the people of New York City and Washington DC and in Pennsylvania, it sent a shockwave across the country and completely around the world. I will tell everybody who was not around when 9-11 happened. This was something that I've never witnessed in my life. I had never witnessed such unity that our country had and the world. But I will tell you right here at home, the unity with everybody. It didn't matter who you were during that time. Everybody was united. Now, why is that, folks? Why was everybody united? Because I will tell you all right here and right now. On that day, the terrorists didn't give a damn if you were a Republican, a Democrat, a Libertarian or Independent, if you were a person of faith, if you were an atheist, if you were gay or straight, if you were black or white, if you were English or Spanish, it didn't matter who you are in this country. The terrorists were out to kill us because we all have one thing in common, and that is because we are all Americans. And their mission was they wanted to kill as many Americans as they could and inflict deep fear into all those that were still, that they could not kill. They wanted the United States to go and retreat from the world. Because if we went in retreat, then Al Qaeda mission was they wanted to conquer the whole region of the world and put those democracies in retreat and in fear. They wanted to be able to dictate and tell us what to do. They wanted to take away our freedoms that day. And you know what, folks? We answered back in the most powerful way, not just in the United States, but around the world. Even our own people that we call enemies, other countries like Iran, Syria, North Korea. They even looked at the terrorists that attacked us on that day and they were like, oh, you guys are crazy little mother, you know. They said, you guys are crazy. You would never, we would never do that. That is extreme. I mean, when Saddam Hussein from Iraq even said the same words, that they were crazy. And just like what Japan said during Pearl Harbor when they attacked the United States, 
they had awoken a sleeping giant. The only difference was they didn't just wake up a sleeping giant, the United States. They woke up Goliath, which is the world. The entire world came together after that day. It is something that I have never seen in my lifetime, and I'm a little concerned because this past year, let's just say the past five years, we have seen something going on in this country that I've never seen in my lifetime, and I'm deeply afraid of it. There is a total deep amount of fear going on in this country. And both sides are to blame for that fear. Our media is also to blame for that fear. The pandemic really exposed how much fear is out there in our country and what's going on around the world. What has happened to us? This is not the United States of America. We are a country that comes together when we're in a crisis, like what happened on 9-11. Everybody was united that day. It did not, like I said, did not matter. But when the pandemic this past year in 2020 happened, that unity that we saw on 9-11 did not happen that day. And I have to tell you, our political leaders, no matter who they are, have a lot to blame for that and the, how people are acting and people of faith, how they acted. It was not what normal it is not normal at all. This is my opinion, folks, but I am telling you there is a deep problem going on and we all need to rise up to the occasion and we all need to stand up and we need to say enough is enough. I am tired of being afraid. After 9-11, I did not go and retreat. I did not live in fear. I went on and I continued on. I did what President Bush and every mayor and governor said in this country. We need to continue living life and live it to the fullest because we don't know how long we have on this earth. And we need to stop bickering animosity against friends, family. We got to stop hating and we got to start loving each other again. The one key thing, the key thing about the United States is that we are a diverse country. We, we've always been a diverse country. It's the whole purpose of building this country is we want to have a country of different opinions. So tomorrow when you are pausing to remember all those who lost their lives on that day. I have a special challenge for each and every one of you that are listening. On this 20th anniversary of 9-11, I want you all to stop what you're doing and I want you to go outside and I want you to take, I want you to sit down either on your front porch or in your backyard or find a place that has a beautiful scenic view, right? If it's a sunset, a beach, a lake, a forest view, what, or just anywhere that has a beautiful scenery. And I want you to sit down. I want you to sit down for 11 minutes, okay? For 11 minutes. And I want you to think back about your life, where it's going, how's it been? 
what resentments you have, what regrets. What are things that you have not accomplished? And it's time to renew those goals. And it's time to start living life to the fullest. It's time to start being fearless. It's time to end fear. If there's any fear in your life, it's time to face it and end it once and for all. Because this country was built to be tough. My grandparents, my great-grandparents, they were very tough Americans because they were living in times with multiple wars, Great Depression, you name it. They've gone through some challenges that if you were born from the 80s on, there were challenges in those times, but not as extreme like what we saw on 9-11. And... It is time to start realizing that we got to be tough and we need to work together. And if we want to keep this country going, we have got to start talking to each other, understanding the problems that we are facing in this country. And we just need to come together and compromise and just come up with solutions and not just try to have jabs at one another because of different political opinions. I will tell everybody here today, I am an independent American. I swing both ways because both sides have not really shown me why I should support either side. And that's my, my choice, my right. And I'm not here today to persuade you guys to be like me. I respect, I have a lot of friends that are conservative, liberal, independent, libertarian, you name it. I have a variety of friends. And the opinions I hear from everybody is amazing. But lately, I've been seeing a lot of hate, divide, discrimination. It must end. It must end now. We got to stop. If we don't stop, folks... We ain't going to have a country in the next 30 years. We got to stop because you know why our enemies, including the terrorists, and I'll tell you guys, Al-Qaeda is still out there. They've been completely dismantled, but they're still running. ISIS is still going on. And they're sitting there laughing at all of us right now because they love watching us tear each other apart. And if you guys want them to win, then that's what's happening now. We are letting them win. Because we are tearing each other apart. And it's time to stop doing that. We need to bring back the unity that we saw on 9-11. And we need to do it now. Thank you so much for taking the opportunity to listen to our episode today. I know it was very long, folks. And I appreciate anybody out there that really took the... Listen to the whole entire thing at once. I really want to thank you for that. Make sure to leave a comment down below. And make sure to follow us on every social media. And make sure to hit the subscribe button. But I really want to take you the opportunity to thank you guys for taking the time to listen to this special episode today. But until then, have a good weekend, and may God bless America.